All right. We got anything playing? Yeah, I hear it, but it's real faint. I got nothing. I, have I can hear it. But I hear that. I can hear that um, noise, that computer noise in I the know. background. It's real faint, though. But your voice comes through clear. I wish we had somebody else in the chat room that could um, let us know what they're hearing. All right. I hope they can get in. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. Difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. 
the practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. Seems as though we we lost Annie. This is the co-host, C.S. Bennett. I cannot hear anything, but... Oh, I forgot um, to unmute myself. Sorry about that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Annie's back being, with us. Talk about being messed up. My computer, if anyone wants to know, my computer, I did an update, <laughs> the Windows update, and any time you do a Windows update, it messes up your system completely. And right now, every just about every last one of my USB drives and other drives attached to the mainframe are not working. So Curtis and I were trying to start the show, and you were getting all this weird background noise. Oh, so yeah. Sci-fi type, again, you know, sounds. Yeah, yeah spaceship. Once again, once again, I'm old school, using the landline to call into the show with a huge chunk of expensive equipment sitting on my desk next to the mixer board that is absolutely worthless at this moment. So hopefully when the new computer comes in, <laughs> at the end of April, I have to wait that long, uh, we can get the show back up and running as it should be. What a mess. I mean, this this can really mess up a wet dream. <laughs> you know that, Curtis? Oh, yeah. And, and mess up our introductions, our wonderfully craft introductions. Jeez. Uh, anyway, uh, we got ourselves a great show lined up. Anyway, we will shoulder ahead. Uh, we've got... Uh, the uh, chief of staff to the CEO of the New Journey PAC, which is a black conservative PAC started by Star Parker, uh, A.J. Swinson, she'll be joining us. Uh, and then we have the president of the National Right to Work Committee, Mark Mix. And, oh, boy, that PRO Act, we're going to have a blast talking about that one. 
And we're going to have Sergeant Mike McGrew return. He's the founder of the 911 at Ease International. We had his partner on last week, so he will be joining us this week. He's also the author of a book called A Higher Call to Duty. And then we're going to close off the show with our Heritage Foundation legal expert, Zach Smith. And he's going to be talking about the attempt to give statehood to Washington, D.C., and he just got back from testifying before Congress on this very issue. So we have about here, Curtis. Yes, we do, and I'm looking forward to it, and our right. guests as well. Yes, absolutely. Now, today's dedication is a little bit different. Normally, we do a dedication to a fallen hero or a small group of fallen heroes. But today's dedication, because yesterday was the National Medal of Honor Day, Today is going to be a continuation of that. It's going to be in honor of yesterday's National Medal of Honor uh, Day and to all of the heroic recipients. And some of this is stuff that I've taken off the Internet. And there have been a total of 3,507 recipients of the Medal of Honor of which 19 received the Medal of Honor twice. And only 369 are still living. The National Medal of Honor, uh, let me just change something here. The National Medal of Honor um, is the United States government's highest and most prestigious military decoration that may be awarded to recognize American soldiers, sailors, Marines, Airmen, and now Space Force Guardians and Coast Guard, who have distinguished themselves by act of valor. The medal is normally awarded by the President of the United States, but as it is presented, it is in the name of the United States Congress. It is often referred to as the Congressional Medal of Honor. There are three distinct variants of the medal, one for the Department of the Army to soldiers, one for the Department of Navy, awarded to sailors and marine, as well as the Coast Guard, and of the Department of Homeland Security, and one for the Department of Air Force, awarded to the Airmen and Space Air Force Guardsmen. The Medal of Honor was introduced for the Department of the Navy in 1861, soon followed by the Department of the Army's version in 1862, the Department of Air Force used by the Department of Army's version until they received their own distinctive version in 1965. The Medal of Honor is the oldest continuously issued combat declaration of the United States Armed Forces. The President typically presents the Medal of Honor at a formal ceremony intended to represent the gratitude of the American people with posthumous presentations made to the preliminary next of kin. According to the Medal of Honor Historical Society of the United States, there have been 3,526 medals of honor awarded to 3,507 individuals since the decoration's creation, with over 40% awarded for actions during the American Civil War. In 1990, Congress designated March 25th annually as the National Medal of Honor Day. 
during the first year of the Civil War, 1865 to 18, I'm sorry, 1861 to 1865, a proposal for a battlefield declaration for valor was submitted to Lieutenant General Winfield Scott, the commanding general of the United States Army, by Lieutenant Colonel Edward D. Townsend, an assistant adjutant at the Department of War, and Scott's chief of staff. Scott, however, was strictly against medals being awarded, which was the European tradition. After Scott retired in October of 1861, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells developed the idea of a decoration to recognize and honor distinguished naval Cross. On December 9th of 1861, Iowa Senator James W. Grimes, chairman on the Committee on Naval Affairs, submitted the bill, S-82, during the second session of the 37th Congress, quote, an act to further promote the efficiency of the Navy, unquote. The bill included a provision for 200 medals of honor to be bestowed upon such petty officers, seamen, landsmen, and marines as shall most distinguish themselves by their gallantry in action and other seamen-like qualities during the present war. On December 21st, the bill was passed and signed into law by President Abraham Lincoln. Forgive me as I try to find the next spot I had marked here. Just bear with me. We're a little discombobulated here today. All right. Some of the recipients, the Medal of Honor, includes the first Medal of Honor's awarded and presented to six U.S. Army soldiers. They were Andrew Raiders on March 25th of 1863. The first U.S. Navy sailors were awarded on April 3rd of 1863. Forty-one were awarded, with 17 awards for action during the Battle of Fort Jackson and St. Philip. The first Marines were John F. Mackey and Pinkerton R. Vaughan on July 10th of 1863. The first and so far only Coast Guard to be awarded was Singleman First Class Douglas Monroe. He was posthumously awarded it on May 27th of 1943. The only woman and civilian who was awarded is Mary Edwards Walker. She was a civilian Army surgeon during the Civil War. She was awarded in 1865 after the Judge Advocate General of the Army determined she could not be given a retroactive commission. And so, President Andrew Johnson directed the usual Medal of Honor for meritorious services to be given to her. The first Black Medal of Honor was to Sergeant Carney and 16 Navy sailors that fought during the Civil War. The first award was announced on April 6th 1865, an additional 12 black soldiers from five regiments of the U.S. Colored Troops who fought at New Market Heights outside of Richmond on September 29th, 64. Today's show is dedicated to all these brave Medal of Honor recipients. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that have served in our nation from the beginning of this country through today and into its future. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, 
firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and defend
Annie, are you unmuted? You, you got me again. You got me again. <laughs> I, darn, All right. I did it again. <laughs> oh, I man. had your back. <laughs> oh, jeez. Ah, man. It's, it, I, I'm telling you guys, it, this is one of these days I just want to put my head in the sand, just bury it. Uh, this is it. <laughs> I can't tell you. Welcome to my world. Jeez. Anyway, <laughs> we've got so much more to talk about. Welcome back. It's Southern Sense. If it's messed up, it definitely has to be Annie. <laughs> nah, it's Friday. The uh, end of the week. You know, it, it's Friday the 13th times two because it's the 26th. Think about that one. It's double trouble. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. But we're going to get through it. Oh, jeez. I hope so. I really hope so. Hey, listen, have you heard the latest in Biden's, uh, Hunter Biden's newest problems? About no. the gun? The gun. Um, obviously, he applied for a, a gun permit. And on the gun permit, when you go to purchase a firearm, it asks if you suffer from any mental or substance abuse issues. And he said no. Um, wasn't he discharged for the Navy for ingesting cocaine? Uh, wouldn't yeah. that preclude him from owning a firearm? And yet he seemed to have managed to have gotten the ability to purchase one and have a permit for it, which he claims he used for target practice. Now, lo and behold, um, Haley Biden, who was his girlfriend at the time, and remember that Haley Biden was uh, Bo Biden's wife, his widow, and uh, Hunter's brother left off. Well, Haley Biden seemed to have felt that that firearm in the house was a bit of a danger for whatever reason she took it out of the house and threw it in a dumpster behind a grocery store. That's real smart. You want to get rid of a firearm that you think may be a danger to someone, they may want to harm themselves or others, yet don't throw it in a grocery store dumpster. You go to the nearest police station and you turn it in. You surrender it. And then after they do any do any investigation, determine whether or not it should be returned to the owner. I just don't throw it in a grocery store dumpster that happens to be across the street from the local high school. Brilliant. Isn't that really brilliant? And so somebody the, found it, huh? Well, well, eventually Haley and Hunter went back to the dumpster to look for it and couldn't find it. At which point they reported it to, I think, the FBI. How the FBI got involved, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, but they could go to the popo. So they they could not find the firearm. Well, what happened was in the interim, there are these people that go around dumpster diving looking for you know recyclables, things that they can turn in for money, such as soda cans and soda bottles. Or other stuff in there that they can recycle. I had a girlfriend that used to go dumpster diving all the time. And some of the stuff she would come up with was, you know, amazing. Uh, So this old guy was doing his dumpster diving and found the firearm. But he turned it in. He turned it in. And subsequently, the FBI, having now become involved because they could not locate the firearm, 
went to the store, the firearms dealer that he bought the firearm from, and demanded the store owner turn over all the paperwork to them. Well, the store owner kind of like smelled a rat and said, well, I think this is going to be some sort of a cover-up. I better not turn this over to them. So he didn't. So they attempted to harass the store owner. He in turn turned around and got the alcohol firearms tobacco involved and turned the paperwork over to them to make sure it was safeguarded. And now the subsequent investigation turns out that Hunter Biden lied on the firearms application. This, this is you cannot make some of these stories up. Yeah, I did hear about that. I just didn't go into debt with it because the last name was Biden. I've been kind of allergic to that name here lately. <laughs> <laughs> I develop an allergy. Mm-hmm. I attempted to watch the press conference, and that was just extremely painful, extremely painful. You know, I do not like Biden's politics. I do not like his style. You know, but to when you watch an individual that has degenerated to such a point mentally and physically, my heart was just breaking. To see this man man just fall apart, um, it was just very, very painful. And whoever's idea was to have him come forward and do this, I don't know. I don't know. Should be fired. Well, I have a funny feeling Queen Camilla Mella may have had her hand in this. If the nation sees how badly he's doing, it may invoke actions for the 25th Amendment. <laughs> Excuse me. To um, remove him from make office her, and make her queen. Her Highness. Yeah. And that was yeah. their plan all along, I believe. You know. Well, I mean, think about this. Her party, she didn't even make it through the debates. She was one of the first to um, leave the stage. And, and now mm-hmm. she's set and in line to become Her Highness. Well, amazing. you've got to remember that uh, Joe Biden recently made a public statement that he relies heavily on advice from former President Barack Hussein Obama, and who is best buddy-buddies with former President Barack Hussein Obama, Queen Camilla Mella. Do we see a little coup in the making, invoking the 25th Amendment? Hmm. Well, you know, they are flashing her her photo all over the supermarket, tabloids and um, magazines that would never, never put, you know, Trump's wife on, the first lady's, you know, picture on, and already Kamala or Camilla, however she pronounce it, she's everywhere. When I go to the supermarket, I just turn away. The allergy comes back. (laughs) (laughs) Bring out the barf bags, boys. Bring out the barf bags. But it, it, it it is getting... Weirder and weirder day by day, but when you have Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi being the power behind the throne, and who is sitting on the throne, but Barack Obama with Queen Camilla Mella on his lap, it makes you wonder exactly what type of a coup is going to occur. And remember, I said this long before the election, 
if he was to get into office, he would not last six months. We are now into month three. In three more months, I say he's going to be gone. I don't think he's going to last a full six months. No, I don't think he's going to last another month. I mean, notice there were there, there wasn't a State of the Union. They no, were no trying to keep this guy away. No State of the Union. The first time in our nation's history that there has been no State of the Union by a sitting president. Yeah, on TV this, or off TV. Isn't that unconstitutional? That Constitution, I do believe, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but that it is a in a timely fashion, he must make an annual statement to the joint houses. That's right. There, and it's called a State of the Union. We have no State of the Union address. And then add to yourself these recent falls that he's been having. Just before he was um, sworn in, he broke his foot, quote, tripping over the dog. Uh, yeah, right. Now he trips on the steps going up to the plane. When you get a person that ends up with a deterioration such as him, falls is a real health hazard. You know, living with handicapped people in my house is something I have to be constantly aware of and constantly on the lookout for. And in his condition, I'm saying, holy cow, I'm surprised there aren't two Secret Service men holding him up the whole long way. Well, you know, when you you juxtapose the, um, you know, when you see Biden on TV versus Trump, you know, Trump looks like a a young 30-year-old because he's so energetic. This guy can stand up there for two hours and and talk. And this other guy has to fumble his way through, you know, five minutes. (laughs) And then they got him off the stage. Well, looks like we have our guest in on the line. Want to welcome on to the show A.J. Swinson. She's the chief of staff to the CEO of the new Journey Pack, which was founded by our friend Star Parker. Good afternoon, AJ. How are you today? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, and New Journey was founded by uh, James Golden, Bo Snidley. Oh, I thought Rush you were Limbaugh, so... Oh, yeah, that's right. Bo Snidley, yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. And I... Right. But I did now... work for Star. Ah, we love yeah. her. We love her. Anyway. Excuse me. It was funny because when uh, AJ turned around and said that he was going to send you over to me today, I'm going, all right, send me a picture and a bio. And I did a quick look and I said, holy cow, you know what? We're connected on LinkedIn, doy. (laughs) Yes. I I immediately thought, oh, I've worked with her before. I used to be a publicist at Salem Books. It was a part of Regnery. And then also when I worked for Star. Yes. yes, yes, we've, We've crossed paths. And I'm like... But I've been doing this now going on 10 years, and I've had so many people on. You know, you, you sometimes forget. And then again, I'm getting old, too, with the gray hair. So you have to Well, congratulations me. on 10 years. That's awesome. Yeah. I, actually, this year we'll make it 11, come this August. Oh, actually. wow. Yeah. So it's uh, been a long time, been a long time. Um, there's so much to talk about. But tell us, what's, what is New Journey uh, Pack, and what do you guys do? Yeah, no problem. So 
new journey pack is focused on connecting conservative values and conservative leaders to the black community. Um, and so right now we're acting as a bridge. There's a gap there that's been there for a little while now. Um, and we're just, we're trying to reconnect, you know, uh, the Republican Party and conservatism. Conservatism are, is the values that Abraham Lincoln held. Um, and so we're just reconnecting these two things together and helping uh, these communities to flourish again with the right information. And that is a marvelous thing. I got to tell you, my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, um, is a Frederick Douglass Republican, right, Curtis? And you've got now 26 or 27 books you've published? 28. Oh, geez. <laughs> wow, I, I missed one. <laughs> I missed 28. one. Yeah. So he's been working really tirelessly hard to try to get the message out to the uh, black community, minority communities, and uh, he's doing it through his writings and through your speeches, right, Curtis? Speeches and um, and, and platforms like this. Um, what we what we're doing now this year, we're reaching out, and I mean different Republican clubs are coming to me with this. We're reaching out to minority registered Republicans, meaning blacks and Hispanics and Asians. And we are bringing them together. So people like myself, K. Carl Smith, uh, Mike Hill, and a few other black conservatives and Latin conservatives, we can show them, you know, how to go out there and, and, and kind of like interact with those who are not Republicans and in a way that they're educating them. It's almost like the principle of Jesus and the disciples. He had 12 disciples, and he sent them out into the world, you know. So we figure instead of trying to invite Democrats to our, you know, place of meeting or whatever, which many of them would never come anyway, we would go with, you know, minority conservatives who are out there living amongst them. And and that's what we're doing, and getting a lot of response. I'm already booked up to, like, July now. Awesome. Yeah. Now, one of the things I saw that you guys have been working on is this uh, 1619 project in the Black Lives Matter uh, curriculum that they're slipping into our public school system. This stuff is really scary. Is that to me or to? <laughs> oh, no, to you. I'm to sorry, you. AJ. Yeah, that's, AJ. <laughs> I that's for you, AJ. Um, you know, it it really is scary, uh, and the unfortunate part about this all is the 1619 project. And I've actually read, um, I've read most of it. I'm still reading through some of it. It's a series of essays that talks about the black experience in America. Now, there's a section of it that I actually don't agree with. Uh, don't agree with and there's a section of it that I do when it talks about how you know despite everything that African Americans have experienced um, many are still patriots still call have always called America their home have always clung to America as you know the place that they love and have always thought to be a patriot even when you know if you think about soldiers returning from Vietnam and stuff like that and you know, black soldiers having trouble getting access to new bills that were for the military. So it talks about that, but I I do worry a little bit that, 
there's no uh, positive outlook. There's no, here's where we are now. Here's how things got better. There isn't enough of that. I think it's important that we teach kids, yes, this is a reality of the way that things were, um, but this is what happened. These are the black leaders that stood up and were patriots and got us to where we are today, and it's really lacking some of that. Um, the fact that it's becoming a curriculum also, I mean, like I said, this is a series of essays. You know, this is more like a didactic magazine than, you know, something that she would build curriculums on. So I'm interested to see what that would look like, and I am concerned as to what they will add on to this content that basically pushes this narrative that America is racist and will always be racist, which is definitely not what we want to teach the kids. No, our nation was predicated upon the idea of freedom, first for religious freedom, but our founding fathers wrote into our documents the mechanisms that allowed the abolition of of slavery. It was debated on the first Continental Congress. Uh, The Constitution almost was not ratified unless certain mechanisms were put in there, which eventually did lead to what became the Civil War. Now, we start each show with a dedication to fallen heroes, and yesterday was the National Medal of Honor Day. And as I was reading the dedication to it, I mentioned, and we did dedicate a a show to this, I think you'll remember, Curtis, to Sergeant Garvey, who was the first African-American to receive the Medal of Honor for his actions during the Civil War as a black northern troop. He held the American flag as he crossed the river after being shot multiple times. When a fellow trooper came to take the flag away from him so he can be tended to, he refused to surrender the flag to anyone until he reached the other side of the river. And this man honored our American flag because he knew of the freedom it stands for, which drives me crazy when I hear everyone who will kneel for the for the flag and not fail to understand what this man fought for. Well, let me add to that, Annie. I live in Interlochen, Florida, and we're proud to, to have a Congressional Medal of um, Honor awardee. Um, he sacrificed his life in uh, the Vietnam War. He, I think it was like around 20, 25, 26. And um, he did it, you know, to save the life of his friend, who happened to have been a white guy. And we're talking back in the 60s when it was a big, big issue in America, you know, race. So, you know, here you have a young black Marine who proudly, you know, gave up his life for his fellow Marine, not thinking of race or, or color, that this was another American and another Marine, and I want to protect him. So... We, we don't really hear a lot about these guys. You know, everybody's fixated on um, superheroes from comic books and stuff, but we have real flesh and blood heroes, and I think they need to talk about them more to our children. AJ? Yeah, I mean, even when you think of, um, I don't know I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but Crispus Atux, um, he yeah. was the first person oh, really to Attic. die in the revolution. Yes, there yeah. you go. Christmas Attucks. Yeah. Um, you know, the first person to die in the Revolutionary War was a black man as well who was present at the Boston Massacre. Um, 
So there's a rich history there of African-Americans serving in our military. My father was in the Navy, and even currently, African-Americans represent a larger portion of the military than we do of the United States. Um, so there, there's a strong patriotic um, wave there, a feeling that we have for this country. And I think if you watch the media and if you see these pundits on TV, you'll think that, you know, there's just all this hate and things like that going on in black America, and that's not necessarily true. Of course there are issues, but most people are just trying to make a living. They're just trying to get a better job, trying to take care of their family, and they're living at peace with each other and with their community. And that's what we need to focus more on, not this negativity that's coming out of these liberal institutions and out of these talking heads. You know, um, it, it's funny because you know, if you go back to your Christian faith, you know, it teaches us that we are all made in the image of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God is white or God is black. God is each is in each and every one of us. We, Every last one of us are made in his image, which is why we all should be treated equally. And yet I, I hear such division coming from the progressive and Marxist left, but the only way they can rule over us and have power over us is if they divide us. And it looks at this point they're trying to succeed. Well, the way that they're starting to succeed is that they've made their focus to be on children. And so they're raising children in an ideology that even my generation was not raised in. You know, I'm a 29-year-old black woman, and I didn't have all this social media to the same level. I think we had Facebook and MySpace at this time, and it wasn't political. All these things were fun. You know, you had different themes. You had music. You connected with friends. And social media has become a pilot to push leftist ideology to children. Um, I had a, a person that I work with tell me, you know, one day his daughter came to him talking, saying things like, well, it's my body, my choice. And this is someone who goes to a private school and was being fed this by a teacher um, who was supposed to be teaching English. Um, and so they're being the focus now is get this into the children's heads when they're far too young to really understand what this means, when they don't understand the implications, when they can't mentally work through all that they're being taught and how that will affect their lives and the lives of the people around them. And so although I would say that's the way that they're able to succeed, is if they can push this into the minds of children then even though people my age may not necessarily attribute themselves to um, the political, you know, opinions that they may expect, the next generation is going to be raised in this from, you know, from kindergarten. You know, they're getting started with a lot of this ideology. And that's what bothers me most, um, the way that they're indoctrinating children. You know, I, I grew up the generation of busing and the heart of the civil rights movement. You know, here we were fighting for unity, for desegregation, and yet you have something like Columbia University that goes in the complete opposite direction. It has, what is it, six or eight separate different graduations for different uh, ethnic or sexual or whatever you want to call it. They, they, 
then separate them. So, you know, each one has their own special. If you're Latino or if you're LBGT or if you're black or Asian, you all have your separate ones. I thought we fought really hard for unity and desegregation to be one people under God, indivisible, in liberty and justice. But it, it's as if the very fabric our founding fathers laid for us to make us the most unique nation in the world has been ripped asunder. You know, that's something I've been researching a lot lately because based on what you're saying, I think we would all agree that to a certain degree the process of desegregation failed, um, a forced desegregation. Um, And I think that actually lies at part of the issue. Um, You know, my dad, my father was talking to me about this just last week, how, you know, he went to a good enough school that he liked um, that needed more funding, needed more books, yes, um, but because of desegregation, now he's being bused two hours away to a school that, you know, has all these different people that are not used to studying and learning together, and basically it turns into turf wars, you know, one squadron against another squadron, um, and he grew up in the D.C. area, um, and so it, it really, he did he have more multicultural experiences? Was the diversity positive in many ways? Yes. I would say that the part of the issue that we're having today with people actually choosing to segregate um, is that desegregation, forcing desegregation didn't truly work. It was an experiment that was not successful. Um, you know, a lot of people have talked about recently how church is the most segregated you know, 11 a.m. on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the of the week. You know, people have to choose to desegregate. They have to seek other people out. And it requires, like you said, unity, shared values. Um, that's what it requires in order for you to be able to live amongst each other. And unfortunately, we're not there yet. Well, it it's also should be known as freedom of association. And and you were right. I was one of those that was bused. Unfortunately, I had to make sure my younger brother and sister got on their buses. So by the time I got to my bus, it was gone. So I ended up walking two miles to school. (laughs) Don't tell me about the one-mile walk. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But I was able to get the bus back home. I just couldn't get to school. Um, So I was one of those, you know, that, yeah, I got slammed against the lockers. You know, here's the little tiny white girl, you know, and – it didn't make me bitter. It just made me smarter. Uh, as you're right, you know, forced desegregation is not. It should be freedom of association. If you offer something equally to everyone, say, for example, access to the schools, say, right, fine, come register your kids, um, first come, first serve basis or whatever you want to do, uh, but not as a quota, and offer as much as you can, it's a market society. And if we leave the market open, the people will naturally associate with what they feel most comfortable with. You know, you are correct. It should be freedom of association, not forced desegregation. 
I agree. I think instead of saying, oh, well, you know, let's equally fund all schools and then the best schools, let's make sure that anyone can go to any school within their district or with, you know, as far as they want to. Um, they can go to any school that they want, and all the schools are equally funded. All the schools, you know, are fairly treated by the state government, by tax money that's dispersed um, and given out. And then we would have people saying, you know, I, I just want my kid in the best school. And I, you know, the fact that they, and I think honestly, people don't realize this, but I think part of this reasoning is what led to affirmative action. If we're going to make forced diversity the main goal, then that, you know, inevitably leads to the idea of affirmative action. So now you're you're pr- pr- creating another problem based on the same thinking of, oh, well, diversity at any cost is good. And, well, sorry, sorry, I was, was going to say this is where the money should follow the child. The child right. should not follow the money. So if you turn around to each and every family and say, all right, these tax dollars are allotted to your child, now you choose where you want that child to go. And then whichever school is most successful will have the most children applying. The one that's least successful should then be shuttered. And let the market speak for itself. And let us bring the best out of our kids instead of equal disaster across the board. Right. Like I said, you know, my father likes the school that he was going to, and it was actually a better school than the one that he was forced to be bused to, um, although it was uh, still under segregation. What they just they just needed more funding. So this is the issue, and this is part of why I'm a conservative. The government will see an obvious issue. One plus one equals two, and they'll take this, you know, all around the way, um, policy that still doesn't fix the problem leaves the country worse off than before. Um, politicians cannot be trusted to solve social issues. The best thing that we want them to do is to allow empower communities and empower states to figure out what will work best for them. We don't need the federal government passing laws that says, oh, bus back and forth. You know, what a waste of money. What a waste of time. What, I mean, so many different levels of ways that education could have improved from that, but instead just became focused on this idea of forcing kids into interracial schools, even if they're being mocked every day, even if, you know, they have to have a police escort every day. Somehow it was still worth it in the mind of these politicians to force this to happen. And and so this is why we have to get it into our minds that we cannot trust politicians to solve these problems because they're only thinking of the moment. They're thinking of their own ideologies and how to further their own goals. And they're not thinking of, you know, how will this, what problems will this create 10 years from now when I'm out of office or 20 years from now? Uh, And that's the unfortunate uh, aspect of this. You know, did anyone think, there's got to be a better solution than this and all these states that instituted this, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, like your father, you know, I was a child of the busing where my parents deliberately moved into a neighborhood where they knew the schools were excellent. And within two years of us moving here, then busing went into full effect, and then we were sent clear across town to a, to a school that we were just wasn't as good. And Mm -hmm. at that point in our neighborhood, 
people were starting to naturally integrate. I think if if government had stayed out, people would have been able to migrate together and intermingle better and naturally. It would have been a more um, uh, homeopathic method of, of healing our nation uh, because of the civil rights movement, which was happening not inside government, but outside government. People were starting to come together and say something's wrong. And Martin Luther King did a marvelous movement in bringing people together from all across the spectrum. I think people naturally would have migrated into, you know, being more cohabitative. You know, look at today. There are more interracial marriages than ever before in our nation's history. It, it was a naturally occurring thing. Government didn't have to force people to marry someone to be interracial. We just naturally did it on our own. So you are right. Once government puts their hands into it, they can mess up a wet dream. Yeah, all government had to do was to get out the way. You know, you the, you had laws on the books, and I get it. Some states were going to remain segregated. They were going to fight back. You know, the South was not going to allow this to happen. It would. I, I get that. At the same time, what we what should have been disc, discussed is, well, then let's just equally fund black schools. You know, even if they don't choose to go to school together, let's make sure that black schools are still getting the funding that they need. You know, there were the stories I've read, um, I think this was in Booker T. Washington's biography, where he talks about, it's either Booker T. or Frederick Douglass, where he talks about they're finally getting a school in this black town. And all of the community comes together. They've got a teacher, and now they've finally got a school, and they're all so excited Everyone comes and brings whatever they can to pay this teacher. And one old elderly black woman, all she had was, you know, the produce that came from her farm. So she promised this young teacher, she's like, I promise I'll bring you fresh eggs and things from my farm. You know, so it's like people wanted education. They wanted that for their children. Of course everyone wants that and understood the value of that. All you had to do was to solve the problem that black education was suffering because there wasn't enough um, opportunity, there wasn't enough funding. They were using old books, broken up books. Multiple students had to share one textbook. You could have just solved that problem. And if people chose to desegregate, then that's great. But you can't force that. That's a social experiment. Um, and, And so we see it now. People are saying, we want, you know, we want to be by ourselves. We don't want the social pressure of having to deal with other people. Do I agree with that? Not necessarily. But, you know, it's, it's a social experiment that was essentially did not work. No, it didn't. But at, there's also at one point there was a hunger for learning. You know, we were taught mm-hmm. critical thinking. We were taught to right. think on our own, to question. And in today's education, that no longer exists. You are fed the problem, you spit it back out verbatim, and if you don't, then something is definitely wrong with you. So now you have these kids shouting out things that just absolutely make absolutely no sense. How can you tell a four or five or six-year-old that you're gender fluid? 
I mean, the child can't even pick out their own clothing, much less decide whether or not they're a boy or a girl. Now, you you do not give a driver's license to a six-year-old. What makes you think you can determine what that child's gender is going to be for the rest of its life at the age of five? It makes absolutely no sense. So instead of critical thinking, instead of sticking to the basics of reading and writing and arithmetic, they are teaching a whole new social mechanism that is destroying our nation. Well, I'm glad you brought those examples up because a lot of that is another example of social experimentation. Instead of us saying, we, you know, instead of people saying, oh, we don't think students are doing as well as they used to, um, we think some students are struggling with their mental health, struggling with self-esteem, instead of coming up with an, an idea or a plan that actually addresses those issues in students, you know, maybe them getting more breaks throughout the day. Having more recess would be great for children. Um, you know, having some group counseling or small group mentorship, things that actually would benefit students, um, help their mental health, help them to deal with the things that they may be dealing with at home, helping them to deal with different identity issues they may be seeing from the media. Instead, no, let's experiment. Let's pump all this crap into kids that don't can't discern yet. Their brain is undeveloped. They cannot discern what all this necessarily means. And they cannot make a choice yet fully what they want for their own lives because they have so little wisdom and so little experience. So let's just dump all this on them and see what happens. And you know, it's it's unfortunate. You know, I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm definitely going to homeschool my children, even if, um, you know, Lord willing, I have some one day. Um, even when they're being sent to private schools, you know, I mentioned my coworker earlier whose daughter was in a private school being taught, uh, you know, my my body, my choice, and all these other ideologies in English class. And then not being taught grammar, you know, there was an issue where there was papers turned in, and, you know, it's like this is all messed up, but they're still getting A's because, oh, grammar is, is white supremacy. Oh, <laughs> so geez. grammar now is white supremacy. Math, you know, because you there's only one answer in math, and it's to the third, uh, you know, decimal point or whatever the standard is now. Um, but, but no, 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 that's white supremacy. Meritocracy, you know, saying that the best um, excel and other people fall other places in the spectrum. Oh, no, no, that's white supremacy. Um, everything, you know, being on time, being polite, these are all things of white supremacy. Um, I was just told today, I haven't gotten to look up this story yet, but apparently there's a legislator in Rhode Island who, you know, there was recently passed a dress code, and he said, you know, this is Western supremacy, this dress code, um, because, you know, he, want, he wants to feel like he can dress the way he wants. And now, so now suits are racist, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's very, very scary what we're seeing right now. I, you know, I hope, I hope everyone listening is praying for this country. Um, because it's not everyday Americans, but these leaders are really leading, trying to push us in the wrong direction. And we have to fight that tooth and nail. 
and not be afraid to stand up against it. Well, tell all those Union soldiers, those white Union soldiers that gave up their lives fighting for the freedom of black slaves, tell them that that was white supremacy. Um, Jeez, yeah, I I get flabbergasted when I hear about white privilege. And I'm like, well, if I have so much white privilege, why don't you tell that to my bank account? Or why don't you tell about the white privilege when I lost jobs to affirmative action? I lost promotions to affirmative action. Yeah, tell me about that, where I had to walk to school for two miles. Yeah, tell me about the white privilege I had back then. And where is it now? Because my bank account sure as heck doesn't show it. <laughs> I don't know. What do you say when you when someone starts to talk to you about white privilege? Well, you know, I this is an interesting thing because when you talk about the idea of privilege, people focus in on, oh, because you're white, you automatically have certain privileges. Charlemagne the God from The Breakfast Club, he has a book called Black Privilege, um, which interesting topic. There, there are different types of things that make it easier for people to be successful. This is like the baseline of my thought on this. Being tall to some people would be a privilege. To others, it wouldn't. Um, being, you know, fast, you know, if you're on track, being naturally fast, naturally athletic. At this point in American society, uh, regardless of what has happened in, in the past, we should all be able to achieve the dreams that we have and to overcome the obstacles that are ahead of us. So to me, it's not productive to be focusing on what you think other people have gotten to get ahead. You know, the idea that, oh, they, they can pass down all this generational wealth. And, you know, studies show that generational wealth usually only lasts two to three generations. And then it has to be rebuilt um, because someone in the line loses all the money, basically, makes bad choices, whatever. Um, it's not easy to be human. You know, life is tough, and we all have our own burdens to bear. Let's all focus on how we can make life easier for each other. And that's typically just, you know, people will get upset over topics like this, and it's like this is semantics. This is why the left puts coins these terms together. This is another thing to divide people, to do, for people to argue about. Instead of us all focusing together on, man, life is hard. Let's do this together. Let's let's make life easier for each other. Let's make mutually beneficial relationships that helps us to further our goals and feed our families and live happier lives. Um, they, they start arguing over these phrases that the left comes up with, and I've just decided I'm not going to do it. It's not productive. Well, you know, I had a debate with a friend of mine, a neighbor across the street, and she knows that I'm conservative, and she definitely is liberal. And uh, she happens to be a lesbian, and I have no qualms about that. Um, and we sat down and had drinks with her wife a couple of times. No big deal. I mean, what you do is your business. I'm not here to change your life. You'll understand where I stand from. It doesn't stop me from being your friend. You know, you know where we stand. It doesn't stop us from having a cocktail together, sharing a meal together. And when the hurricane hit, I was very happy to take pictures of her property to let her know that everything was safe. And she was amazed. And I said, my rule in life is basically follow the golden rule. Do unto others right. as you would have them do unto you. And once you turn around and put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're dealing with, 
then think about it of the way you want to be dealt with. Do you want to be dealt with malice or do you want to be dealt with love and friendship? And I, I, that is how I think our founding fathers originally intended our nation to be. Well, I'm so grateful. I think there's so many people that lack faith. I'm so grateful for the faith, you know, to be have been raised, knowing who Jesus is, knowing what he did for me, and being raised that I'm supposed to carry that cross too, that when I help someone in a tough situation, when I give to the poor, I'm giving to Jesus. And so part of the breakdown I think we're seeing is people aren't being taught the golden rule in the same way. You know, um, is the Bible the next target of the white supremacy, you know, argument? Who knows? It's, oh, Western civilized, Western supremacy, the Bible. No, these are, these are concepts that are so important to teach to young children um, you know, they don't need to know that there's a possibility of 27 genders. They need to know how to respect all people and treat all people with love. Well, that's a huge amen to that one. And that's the problem we have. We've had it now where our society is altered to the point where faith is being shut behind doors. And heaven forbid, it has to be only behind the church. You cannot talk about it in the streets. Uh, you cannot exhibited out in public i mean um i still run a tea party believe it or not all these years later and i had a member turn around that she had to go to court for whatever reason and the case was dismissed and she says oh thank god she was just that happy that the ordeal was over the judge chastised her saying you cannot say that in this courtroom there is a separation of church and state can you believe that I know. It's really unfortunate because they're taking this somewhere that the Founding Fathers never envisioned. Because if they wanted church and state to be that separate, why are there Bible verses on all these government buildings? I mean, they understand that we shouldn't prioritize one religion over another. And they understand that we want freedom of religion. We want freedom of worship or the lack of worship. But this idea that you know, now your your religion should never be spoken of. It should never be said. Um, this is a way that a lot of countries have already gone. You know, in, Ca- in Canada, I believe, you cannot proselytize. So you can't go out into the streets and talk to people about Jesus or whatever religion you have. It's against the law. So they're basically telling you, if you want to do that in your house, if you want to go to your little church, but, you know, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to see it. We don't want your kids to display it in school. Um, we don't want any pre- any presence of God in the secular world. And then we wonder why the secular world has gotten so much darker. Because, of course, there is no light. Um, so I think as Christians, Alliance Defending Freedom actually had a recent court case that they won where a student was told, you know, he couldn't talk he couldn't pass out pamphlets, you know, of the Constitution. And, and, and the court's like, of course he can. So if, if they're saying you can't pa- pass out things like the Constitution because of a safe space, then I wonder what they would say about, you know, a Bible tract. But that's just the way that society is going. And we have to start fighting these things with public opinion, number one. Uh, we have to be educating our stu- our children, number two, 
you know, I talked to a lot of conservatives, and this is why I decided to soon start a podcast, because I have so many conservatives when I do media or when I'm at an engagement where they're like, my child, you know, is your age, and they're so lost, and, you know, I just, I don't know how to get through with them about conservative principles. And it's like, if if our own children don't understand what they should believe, then how spread that to other people, you know? So we've got to start changing public opinion. We've got to stop start saying, you know what, even if they're going to shut me down for saying this, it's got to be said. And we've right. got to start changing public opinion minds to say, why shouldn't, you know, say I was Muslim, why shouldn't I be able to say, you know, Whatever God I wor- whatever God I worship, why shouldn't I be able to close in prayer by saying that God's name? So now, if I pray in front of Congress, I can't say in Jesus' name. How do we allow that to happen? Because we've allowed our Constitution to be corrupted. Because the First Amendment clearly states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Because they understood, having coming from Europe, especially Britain, that government and religion were married. The Church of England was a government-run religion. But it also adds on or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And when I moved to my little town here in South Carolina, there used to be a sidewalk preacher. And I got a kick out of just listening to this guy. But you know what? They outlawed him, and how they did it is that they said he was disturbing the peace prohibiting the free expression of religion. And we have allowed that to happen, and we've allowed those people that, if you don't want to hear it, walk away. If you don't want to hear the preaching, walk away. It's as simple as that. Change the channel. And this is what we have failed to to understand. Um, It looks like we may have someone here with a question for you, AJ. You up to taking a, a caller's question? Yeah, sure. Okay. Want to welcome on to the show Matthew. You're here live with Southern Sense. I'm your hostess Annie, the Radio Chickadee, along with our guest AJ Swinson with the uh, New Journey Pack. You have a question for our guest? Yes, my name is Matthew E. O'Neill. I am the number one ranked editor for Everpedia.org. It's a site that rivals Wikipedia. It has six million articles. It's based out of Santa Monica, California, and the founder, Larry Sanger, has been on CNN. Uh, the reason for the call is, of course, uh, although the presidential election is over with, I'd like to ask you, but do you think that uh, there was fraud in Georgia or, or fraud in Pennsylvania, or do you think that the election was, was correct? Do you think that Donald Trump may have won those two particular states, or do you think that Biden is the outright winner? Well, Matthew, that's not the subject of which we're discussing because A.J., I do not believe, is an attorney. So any opinion she would have would be just her personal opinion. Uh, I don't think it's fair for her to cover that on a subject that we're not addressing at this moment. So at this particular time, are you talking about the First Amendment of, of the U.S. United States Constitution, the separation of, of, of the press and speech? Is that the particular topic that you were discussing? No, we're talking about black theology and teaching uh, and Marxism being taught in our classroom. Uh, the the corruption of our children instead of sticking with the basics and teaching critical thinking, uh, bringing up children to be responsible uh, adults and uh, not harming themselves. 
Okay, so your program is, is based down south, is that correct? No, sir. We, car- we cover a myriad number of topics, but that is at this moment not a topic we are covering for this guest. Okay, so I'm well, at, well, at, one at, thing that I one thing I will just say is that New Journey Pack, the organization I work for, um, we did have people on the ground in Georgia and um, in Pennsylvania as well, and we were not pleased with what we saw. So let's just hope that the next election, that the uh, Republican Party um, works with more organizations like ours to make sure that there are poll watchers and um, people upholding the integrity of the elections. I thank you for the call, Matthew. Okay, well, thanks. All right. Okay. How was that, AJ? (laughs) 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 There's always someone that's going to try to pull a a troll act on us. matter of fact, I had one at our recent Tea Party meeting. I had a state senator addressing certain issues, and he came up with something completely off the wall and just had a – go, okay, no, 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 we're not going to fall into that trap. And I didn't want to see you fall into that one. (laughs) Got to, got to. (laughs) We got your back. Um, You know, uh, one of the things I wanted to address is the effect of these lockdowns on these kids, because now they're all remotely schooling. And here again, we're dealing with kids not interacting with adults. And there is a problem with development of the child being able to recognize social signals, uh, develop social skills, and being able to intermingle socially. Um, There's a huge loss here. And is your PAC addressing this also? So the issues with the, the there's two things with this. One, in a way, um, our New Journey PAC supports school choice and educational freedom. Um, and so in a way, this has provided a lot of parents who are saying, you know what, I'm gonna, I, want, I want school choice in my state. I should be able to send my child to a private school that's willing to open if the public school is not. Um, one thing that I've seen also is that a lot of parents are um, homeschooling their children as well. So it's opened up a lot of people to see outside of the public school system as the only option for their students, which I think is the positive aspect. The negative aspect is what you said, you know. Youth are social creatures. I actually used to teach middle school, and then I briefly taught high school as well. Um, And they look forward to being around each other every day. And one thing that you'll notice is is that Zoom is not enough. It's not enough for them to catch up with their friends. It's not enough to help them to understand social cues and build, like you were saying, the social skills that they needed. Um, When I taught, it was actually right at the beginning of the pandemic. So last March, all students were basically sent home. Now, students who were being bullied and being harassed at school were happy, you know, and a lot of their parents chose to keep them at home because these were students who were either underdeveloped socially or just were being picked on, and it was actually better for them to be at home. But the students who needed to be around each other, who needed to learn from other people, who needed me as a teacher to really break things down with them right there next to them and explain to them, that was heartbreaking for me because it's like I, in a video, I can do my best to explain things to you. I can have a whiteboard up and you can watch me on the whiteboard on the Zoom, but it does not replace in-person teaching. 
Um, and a lot of students really need that um, in order to stay focused, in order to get assignments done, and in order to truly be learning. Um, and one last thing on that as well is that studies show if a student doesn't get what they need um, at any point in their education for a year, they cannot catch up. So there is no, you know, oh, well, that at least it only happened one year, they'll catch up the next year. No, if a child falls behind, that whatever their brain needed at that moment, it can't be gotten back. It's, that's just not the way that we operate. There are things that they need to learn at that age, and there are things that they need to experience, all of that, that will then, this is then stunting them in the future. So we're going to see the results of this in the next generation. We're going to see young people who have some developmental issues or are maybe lacking some knowledge because they can't be taught adequately at home, and they missed out on a portion of their education because of that. You know, we are living in a, a really weird age between the pandemic and now the heavy reliance on social media, 24-hour news cycles. Um, these kids are being bombarded in ways that are not natural. Uh, they should be out there playing with each other, uh, learning to interact. They need adults to mentor, guide them, and when necessary, discipline them. Uh, and this is not occurring. Uh, you've got parents that they have to find some way to work to bring money in a house because I'm sorry, the Joe Biden $1,400 check is not going to get that unemployed worker very far, very long. You know, we we are are doing so much damage. But with the social media, such as Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, whatever is out there today, uh, kids – Self-esteem is based upon how many people like or comment on their posts compared to how many friends they have in school and what their peers think of them in school or in any other setting. That social animal need of the human being has been removed. I agree. Um, a lot of people don't understand um, the importance of the social aspect to learning. So now students are getting everything, like you said, from being online. And so, you know, young girls, Instagram has actually been shown to be the most unhealthy, has to be the most unhealthy social media website. And the reason for that is, is because it shows all these images that young girls then say, they look at and they say, oh, why don't I look like that? Why don't I have this, you know, because these social media apps have become very corporate. They're all about selling something. So you're seeing all these ads. They're pushing people to, um, to your feed that are selling something. All these social media stars are, a lot of them are either very, very thin or, you know, they have exaggerated bodies and they're doing all this for attention, to get a like, you know, anything to get the most likes on a post. And so it's really perversely incentivizing bad behavior. So we're seeing young girls posting things online. You know, like I said, I taught middle school, and I heard some of the horrible things that guys and girls were posting of each other, inappropriate, um, you know, drug-related, all these different things that they're doing to get attention and to get likes. So it's feeding a part of a child that wants attention and wants to be cool 
and it's feeding it in a really negative way that we probably haven't seen before um, that technology is allowing. Um, and, you know, I'm really, really concerned. I talked to parents that I had at the time, and I told them, I'm like, I, I caught one young man um, on his iPad looking through the wrong types of things um, on his iPad, and I let his uh, parents know, and they were shocked. They had no idea that he, was, that he would do that. And they had no parameters around this student's usage to protect them from the different things that they could experience on social media. So this is the unfortunate part of this. Parents don't recognize that they need to be protecting their child and aren't doing it. So this child is being exposed to all different types of things on social media that they don't need to be. Well, you know, uh, growing up, (laughs) this is a funny story. Um, You're right about, you know, magazines and stuff project an image of what you should be looking like and for me as a kid I had freckles I had a lot of freckles and I get I got teased for the freckles and I saw in one of the magazines if you want to get rid of freckles you use elderberry and I went all over to every single nursery in my neighborhood on my little bicycle trying to find anyone that had elderberries, trees. or I even went to farm stands looking for elderberries just to get rid of my freckles. And I think back now on that, and it's comical, but these kids get into their head that this is what I'm supposed to look like. You know, this everyone likes so-and-so because she looks like this, and I want to look like her. And now, when I was growing up, it was anorexia or bulimia. And you were either one or the other, and you were part of the group. You were the in crowd if you did this. And usually it's girls that you see doing these things, and they're the ones that are more susceptible to this type of social reengineering, if you want to call it that. But now with the advent of the Internet and our smart devices, we're seeing now a growing rash of where now they're all transgender. And originally when transgender became diagnosed, it was only 1% of the population and it was vast majority, 90 to 95% were boys. We see now the opposite and I fear the, this access during the pandemic to the World Wide Web has is causing a different type of epidemic. These girls will ruin their bodies for the rest of their lives, and they're too young to understand the decision they're making. And also, you know, it will affect their mental health. You know, uh, I loved, I've always loved fashion, and I wanted to buy magazines and put them up on my walls, like I saw, you know, people doing the cool different looks on their walls in their room with magazine photos. And my parents, I remember, they they said no. They're like, that is not real life. You buying, spending all that money on clothes is not real life. Looking like that is not real life. If you want to look someone to look up to, find real women to look up to. And I was really upset over that at the time, but now I recognize that they helped me not to take in what the current culture was saying was beauty. Um, and they helped me not to start to say, oh, well, I need. I wish I was like this. I wish I looked like this. You know, part of that is natural because as a 
as a young person, you're figuring out who you are, you're learning to accept yourself, you know, part of this is what is happening to you. And if you add on to that, if you exacerbate that with social media, with, you know, millions and millions of users who are seeking to get more likes and who are seeking to do whatever it takes to get attention, um, you know, it's, it's not going to affect students well. One thing I noticed teaching is, is that teaching middle school is already hard enough, right? When you're mm-hmm. teaching middle school students who are used to screens all the time and social media where they can just keep swiping until something interests them, and then they might pause and keep swiping. You know, they, they start a video, pause it, get bored, keep swiping. These are people whose attention spans are, you know, literally down to 30 seconds. So imagine how that's affecting them in the classroom as well. If you cannot focus long enough to, to if I'm trying to explain a, a concept that you don't get right away, then you lose focus. Um, and so there's a lot of different issues that technology and social media has brought to America's children. And the funny thing is people like Bill Gates and, you know, um, Steve Jobs, they didn't allow their kids to use the technology that they created because they understood it wasn't for kids. But for some reason, everyday Americans are buying kids phones at seven and, you know, allowing them to join every social media platform and all these different things. And it's like we have to be we have to be aware of what's going on and we have to protect our kids. And unfortunately, that's not happening. Uh, And the best thing that we can do is to educate parents and to help them to understand there are real issues that your child will have because of this. So please make different choices. Yeah, take the screen time down. I was reading, um, I I don't know why I torture myself, but one of these advice columns in my local commie rag, (laughs) and I know I call it that, um, and this eight-year-old had written in that the parents had limited the screen time with the the kid's best friend. It seems obvious the kid thinks, an eight-year-old thinks he is a transgender and his best friend, they want to talk to each other. So the parents said, this doesn't seem to be healthy. And the advice was to go to someone else, some other adult besides your parents, and talk this out and seek advice. And this is what is being told to our kids. So the ability to parent is being taken away from the parent. And this this is one of the things that even this Equality Act is going to be doing, taking away the rights of a parent to make a decision for their child. Well, this is the that's the trajectory of leftist ideology. Um, it, it flows into social issues, but keep in mind, remember, I believe it was in Britain, there was a baby who wanted further medical care. His parents wanted to get him more medical care when he was sick. And England's um, health department said, no, you know, nothing else for this child. We're sorry he's sick, you know, whatever. It got to the point where even the Pope was willing to fly a helicopter out to pick this child up so that he could get health care elsewhere, and England said no. So imagine, you know, as we have the discussions we're having now about government-run health care and things like this, when you sign up for these things, you don't understand that you're signing some of your control away to the government. 
and and that I I remember reading about this. I cannot remember the baby's name, but I'll never forget the picture of his parents just looking so distraught, wanting to get different treatment for their child, but being disbarred you know, being um, barred from doing so by their government. So we have to keep that in mind. If we as as parents, as adults, if we aren't taking responsibility for ourselves and for the choices that we're making and for what we're experiencing with our students, our children, then we're going to continue to see this played out where the government takes more control. The government says, oh, you know, we think that we need to teach children sex ed because parents aren't doing it. And now if your child wants to opt out of a sex ed class because of all that's being taught, they're like, no, 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 you have to be in this. Um, And and this is happening all different levels. When the government grows, it imposes its strengths on you and tries to take away your right to say, no, I don't want this. So that's why the concept of personal responsibility is so important. And that's also why two-parent households that are involved in their child's life is so important because the last thing you want is the government thinking that they have an in um, to take more control away from parents. You know, the great experiment of LBJ was the complete destruction of a growing and powerful and prosperous black middle class. And the largest number of millionaires coming out of a middle class. If you ever want to subjugate a specific group of people, then you agree with LBJ's great social experiment of, of welfare and every other entitlement program that followed in its footsteps. And that's the whole idea. You keep a class down, you end up having a permanent vote. You will always remain in power. And that is exactly what they are trying to do, regain control of our nation. And uh, thank God that you are out there and others like you are out there and fighting the fight, fighting the good Christian conservative fight, the Judeo-Christian conservative fight. I, you know, I I honestly believe that, um, you know, God calls us all to fight. It should be all of us, not just you know, listening in and having our own personal opinions, but we should be sharing this, the gospel first, but then the truth as well um, accompanied with that to all the people that we can because we have to keep in mind, like, this is what will improve their lives. This is what will make life better for other people. Um, Even at my former boss, Star Parker, she said, you know, two black men called her out and told her, what you're doing is unacceptable. And it wasn't until then that she started to think, what standard are they judging me by? She hadn't even thought about at that time, you know, what God thought about what she was doing. Um, And so the truth aligns with that. When we're talking about the truth of personal responsibility and things like that, you know, we have to share this with other people. And we can't allow what's going on in the media right now to make us afraid of speaking up. No, we do have to find our voice, and you are doing it in such a powerful way, and I'm happy to give you a platform to uh, extend it across the nation. Thank you. Thank you so much. And if anyone has any questions um, or wants to learn more about New Journey PAC, you can go to newjourneypac.org. Well, thank you, and God bless. Keep up the fight. Could you repeat that one more time? New Journey PAC. 
there is a link up on the show page. So we do get a lot of people listening to the uh, archives later on. So I'm just telling them to click on the link where it does say New Journey Pack, and they'll go directly to your website and see the hard you and all the others are doing there. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. All right. looks like a, my computer is now messing me up again. Oh, come on, computer. Don't do that to me. All right. Come on. My computer is messing up. Bear with me, folks, because I swear this computer, it, it, it hates me. My computer actually does hate me, Curtis. I, I, there's no other excuse. <laughs> All right. So um, I'm just going to send a message to our next guest rep uh, and let him know that neither numbers work and maybe they can have him call in. So bear with me while I shoot off a really quick uh, uh, message to them. I'm just saying Mark's numbers don't work. Live this No, neither one. Well, they work. I just didn't get any response. So. Must be in demand. All right, uh, I'm going to just say have him call us All right. and make sure I get the right number there. Fingers don't fail me now. <laughs> All right, I'm just saying live and press. Okay, just said live now. Okay, sending that out. All right, there we go. Let's hope we get a response back on that, and I guess we'll call in. But we do have other stuff to talk about. Um, uh, just let me get my head together here. Um, yeah, I would say that it's it's good that um, we have a lot of organizations out there that are reaching out to minorities and that um, even during the last election, the president – um, had a large amount, you know, of minor, minorities that um, voted for him than in um, the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I keep oh. hearing people say that the, the president lost the race because of the way he, he talks on Twitter, but you don't draw 5 million people to your cause turning them off. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, there are... Um several different states that are reopening investigations into election fraud and election recounting. And um, I'm looking to see where I put those articles because I threw them to the back of the thing. Uh, But uh, I believe it's Montana uh, is one of the states. Uh, There's some more stuff going on with the Georgia uh, where they're going to be looking at some of the recounts there. Uh, So several different states at the problem with the elections and uh let's see what happens but we also have this election bill this h1 what a nightmare that is and i had a whole big news article on that oh here it is this is live this is live all right uh this was in the epic times and i'm telling you guys i do this subscribe to it it's a great paper it comes once a week comes directly to your mailbox and it is really very very informative it takes you the whole week to read it because it is so in-depth um it what it would do is would 
take away the rights of the states to determine how their own elections are run takes control away from local elections, period. The federal government will now determine how your elections will run. That's the number one problem with it. So say, for example, here in South Carolina, um, for the pandemic, temporarily, they lessened the rules for absentee uh, balloting. Uh, because of the pandemic, and if you could prove that you were shut in, blah, 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 but you had to follow a certain criteria. It was one of the more tighter ones than the rest of the nation where you didn't need verifying signatures and blah, 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 or ID collection. They went back to the original rules and tightened that up. Matter of fact, there's legislation here in South Carolina to even make it even tighter. Um, It would take away our ability to do that. It limits a plaintiff's access to federal courts when challenging H.R. 1. So in other words, they're going to pass a bill that says no matter what we do or how unconstitutional this bill is, we're not going to allow you the mechanism to constitutionally challenge it or challenge it against your state laws. How do you like that? You are actually giving yourself they are giving themselves a protection against us challenging the law. Now, do you think that's fair? It's unconstitutional, and sadly, in order for this to get to the Supreme Court, it has to pass first. Because I think we had a conversation about this about a month ago, and I, I said to one of our guest speakers, now, if the uh, you know Democrat Party wants to put blacks back into slavery, we have to do that first before we can approach the Supreme Court, you know, to show that we've been harmed by it. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It is. Well, by limiting the access to the courts, what they basically did was the bill mandates that any lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of H.R. 1 could only be filed in the district court for the District of Columbia. And all plaintiffs be required to file joint papers or be or to be represented by a single attorney at oral argument. So if you're someone like Judicial Watch that has a whole slew of attorneys, any any challenge to H.R. 1, to the constitutionality, can only be filed in that one single court, and only one attorney can do the actual oral arguments. You can't have two or three present to assist in the oral arguments. Only one can be present. And if that doesn't hamper your ability to file a challenge, I don't know what what does. Um, It mandates automatic voter registration called AVR in all 50 states. Um, 19 states currently have AVR. Now, here in South Carolina, when you go to motor vehicles, uh, you fill out your registration or for your driver's license, you fill out your renewal or application, and on there it asks you if you are an American citizen. Um, it doesn't ask you proof of citizenship. It just asks you if you're an American citizen. And then at the bottom it asks you if you want to be registered to vote. It, so it does require you to say that you're a citizen before you're registered to vote. This takes that away. And by taking that away, you now open the door to felons that are barred from uh, uh, voting and illegal 
aliens, I'm not even going to say the word immigrant, illegal aliens, will now be registered to vote with these AVRs. And if you want to keep the Democrats in power for the rest of it, this is what they're going to do. On top of which, Chuck Schumer wants to get rid of the filibuster. So only 51 votes would pass H.R. 1. Al Sharpton has even gone out to say that anyone who blocks and tries to prevent us from taking away the filibuster is a racist. So now they pull the race card. So they're doing any and every dirty trick to pass these unconstitutional legislations. And it's uh, all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna start getting pissed off here. Anyway, let's welcome <laughs> onto the show. Uh, he is with. Uh, uh, see, I'm getting myself upset. The uh, president of the National Rights to Work Committee, Mark Mix. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? Well, I'm doing fine, Annie, but it looks like we're our blood pressures are both going to go up here in a minute or two. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I, I get the Epic Times, and God bless the hard work that these people do on this newspaper. And I had yeah. just recently signed up for it. And for some reason, you know, it was like two months before the first one came in the mail. So I finally called them up, and I said, you know, guys, what happened here? So they went and they got me the back issues, and it took me two weeks to go to the back issues. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But uh, I saved this one on HR1, and if you want to see your blood start boiling, you start reading everything that's through it. And it's like, you've got to be insane if you let this thing pass. But then again, that does explain our current Congress, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed it does. And and the aggressive nature of this administration and and the leadership that uh, for a moment in time has, uh, you know, a majority, certainly a majority of the House and uh, a majority of the Senate because of the uh, the tie-breaking vote of uh, Kamala Harris, they are ready to push their agenda. And you know, Annie, you've been around the around this a long time, I suspect, and, and or not that long. Excuse me, you've been around a while, but not that long. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, you're talking uh, to a I, woman yeah, here. I need to be careful. I know. I understood. This is Southern comfort. I get it, and uh, you can say bless my heart, bless your heart if you want, Annie. I, I understand what that means. Anyway, um, you know th- they want to get this pushed as fast as they can so that they think the American people will forget about it when 2022 rolls around and when the Senate's back in play and and the majority in the House is back in play. And and frankly, Annie, you know the partisanship is um, uh, the partisan makeup of the Congress is really you know something that we really shouldn't rely on when we're trying to defend individual liberty and freedom. I mean, we need people that will stand up and understand the issue, whether they have a D or an R behind their name, um, you know, it's an interesting time in, in our country's history. Uh, not to not to have enough hubris to think that, you know, this country has not been through times like these before. We have, and we've been through difficult times. And what happens is when Americans pay attention to what's happening, um, when they watch what the legislatures are doing, what they, what they, when they invest time in understanding what the bills and the legislation that's, that's currently working its way through the process here in Washington, D.C., and they hold their politicians accountable. That's when things work. And for us at Right to Work, there's one of these bills out there. Not only will H.R. 1 affect us um, in in chilling the First Amendment rights of people who try to support us, but this uh, bill, H.R. 842, which is so-called PRO Act, which uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott says is, you know, would immediately repeal all the Right to Work laws, including South Carolina's. He's right about that. This is a major labor power grab. And when I say labor, I mean union official power grab because it doesn't really give workers any power at all. It just gives union officials more power. Powers over workers across the country, so we're we're fighting that too. 
Yeah, this PRO Act. Now, California passed a version of it, and you think there's there's a lot of these independent workers out there. I'm not talking about just Uber or I'm not no, Uber, Uber or any of these other things, but you know, independent screenwriters, authors, um, and what they just did was kill all of those individuals' ability to work. Not only that, small businesses, if you have an independent contractor that you sub some of the work out to, the PRO Act will kill that also. Yeah, exactly. This is That was the so-called AB5 bill that was passed through the California legislature and signed by the governor out there. And interestingly enough, you know, it was so bad that even California had to go back and reform it, and they pulled out some of the provisions that they did exactly what you're talking about, Annie. It put a lot of independent-minded people, gig workers, freelance workers that were doing writing and doing uh, you know, journalism and driving Uber cars and Lyft cars, put them right out of business because they would have had to be, been employees if they you know, met, met this so-called called ABC test. But that, that bill, that AB5, that language is just one small part of the PRO Act that has you know nine or ten different things that uh, union officials have been trying to get for years. But you're right. I mean, the impact on California was dramatic. Literally hundreds of thousands of people who heretofore had been working, you know, doing what they wanted to do in most cases, uh, some of them making additional uh, efforts to subsidize a, a previous job or a different job or a, a job that they were currently having, and all of a sudden this law said if you if you write so many columns or if you put, put post so many times on a website you now have to be an employee and the employer didn't want that and the and the independent contractor didn't want it but that was imposed on them by that AB5 and that is part of the pro act to your point and the criteria to show that you are fully independent is so tight that it's impossible to be met so no matter what you do you end up being forced to be the employee and a union member, no matter what. Yeah, that's right. It's about it, ultimately it's about giving union officials the opportunity to organize these workers. In fact, we ended up representing a bunch of Uber employees in Seattle, Uber and Lyft employees up in Seattle, who, after the Seattle City Council passed an ordinance that said you had to be a Teamster union member, you had to be unionized by the Teamsters in order to drive for Uber or Lyft. You know, you kind of saw what was coming, and this trickled down into we beat them in the court out in the Ninth Circuit out there, um, and it, there was another case that was talking about antitrust violations and some of the things that the Seattle City Council tried to do or County Commission tried to do, but ultimately California picked up on it. They had a piece of legislation that was sitting there, this AB5, and they rammed it through. And now, as you know, things happen in California, they tend to they tend to move eastward. It used to be in this country we moved westward, but now, from a policy perspective, it seems like what happens in California moves to the east. But this one, to your point, is very dangerous, and it's going to have a dramatic impact on, on individuals who heretofore have decided for whatever reason to do independent contracting sometimes it's all they can get sometimes it's what they choose to do and uh, but yet the federal government will step in and say oh yeah now you've got to be an employee and ultimately be subject to unionization and now you also now have mandatory union dues even if you don't want to be in the union you don't agree with the politics of the union you still have to mandatorily pay your dues so hey Joe Biden and Queen Kamala Mello will be in power for the rest of their lives 
Yeah, that's the part that uh, that obviously got our attention. The PRO Act includes a provision that would wipe out all 27 right-to-work laws in the country. We've passed five new right-to-work laws in the last nine years, starting in Indiana and then moving up to Michigan and Wisconsin and, and West Virginia and Kentucky. They've all passed right-to-work laws, and those laws are really simple, Annie. They simply say, if you want to join a union, do it. If you want to participate in a union, do it. If you want to give your entire paycheck to a union, do it. But you can't be fired from your job for failure to pay dues or fees to a labor union. That's the simple law in 27 states. This PRO Act is designed not only to eliminate all 27 of those right-to-work laws, but make it impossible for states to pass one in the future. I mean, it's really dramatic in that regard. And uh, so you couple right-to-work repeal with AB5 from California, you set up a bunch of people to unionize, and then even in the states now where they're protected, where they can keep their job, uh, and they don't have to pay union dues or fees to keep their job, that would be eliminated, and it serves up a whole pile of union dues. And that's exactly what, uh, what what you were intimating when when uh, the political that political money comes to bear on our on our public policy process. Now, if this law had been in place when Ronald Reagan was president, um, I'm going to name just one group: air traffic controllers. Hmm. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. Now, I owned a travel agency at that time, so you know, <laughs> and I voted for Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, that was an interesting situation. You know, history gets the, the victors write the history books. And, and one of the things about the Ronald Reagan and the air traffic controller strike was that the federal law said it was illegal to strike against the federal government. And Ronald Reagan did what he's supposed to do. He sent him a note saying, look, you're, what, this strike is against the law, and if you don't return to work, then you will be fired. And that's what the law provided for. And he did that. And somehow, you know, that story turns into Ronald Reagan, the union buster, when basically you had these employees breaking the law. And, you know, I know there's a whole lot of people that are above the law in the country right now, but you and I aren't. You know, I think it was George Carlin that said, you know, it's a big club and you and I ain't in it. And uh, when it comes to being responsible under the law, and I know that that narrative of the air traffic controller strike is one that, that people go back to all the time and say that was the beginning of the end. But frankly, it's like states like, you know, many states have laws against teacher strikes, for example, but that doesn't stop teachers from going out on strike. And they just say, the first thing they say is, look, we want amnesty. You can't punish us. The first thing we have to have before we'll come back to work is you promise not to enforce the law and, and, and fire us. And so that's the type of power that union officials exercise across the country. And, and to Reagan's credit, I mean, he basically said, you're breaking the law, not a law that he passed, a law that was in place before he was there. And, uh, and he just enforced that law. And that's kind of a rare thing these days, it seems like. Yeah, not only that, if the employees do strike, they cannot be permanently replaced. They, ha they get to keep their job. So, you know, air traffic controllers would have been reinstated under the union, and the union would have grown even better. But what gets me really on this one is something called secondary strikes and boycotts, which will now become fair game. Now, that oh, boy. hurts the guy sitting on the peripheral side that has nothing to do with that. Maybe this, this company is making widgets, and the peripheral company is just making the box that you put the widgets in. They get penalized just as badly as the guy making the widgets. Exactly. That is uh, that is a big part of this, and you are you are spot on in your analysis. So, for example, Annie, you and I, we own a bakery, and uh, the union wants to organize us. And instead of coming out and picketing at our bakery shop and stopping people coming to get our loaves of bread, they go to the people that are supplying our flour. 
and they tell them and they pick at them and they they block their delivery trucks you know from coming out of their yard to deliver flour to our business this has been against the law it's been in the statute as illegal for years and years and years and years and unions want to change that because it would dramatically increase their leverage on employers i mean you you target the weakest link in the chain and that weakest link is someone like in my little example the flour provider maybe we're his only customer and uh, if he doesn't do what the union says then he loses his customer or the leverage they can put on him can can affect his business across the border her business across the board and it's really a scary thing and you know it's interesting in uh, England back in the in the coal miner strike back in the early 70s and this kind of brought Margaret Thatcher to the fore this secondary boycott was exactly what the unions were doing over there and uh, you know in the United States it's illegal to do that but the PRO Act would make it legal to apply these secondary boycotts to customers and vendors and and uh, uh, you know people suppliers that that are basically on the periphery, as you say correctly, from a labor dispute. Now, you said customers, too, would be affected? Well, they could do whatever they wanted. I mean, they could set up they could set up picket lines, you know, uh, uh, you know, around a, a shopping center and and boycott people coming in and and stop people from coming in. I mean, it basically gives them the power to leverage a target in a thousand different ways. And I'm sure they'll be creative about it. I mean, we have stories and stories and stories of of how union officials run these corporate campaigns. They call it a death of a thousand cuts. And there's no one piece of it that makes a difference. But when you go after an employer or a small business person and you target their bank, you target their their suppliers, you you put up picket lines around their buildings and and make it uncomfortable for customers to come to their place to do business. I mean, that is that's the type of pressure that makes a, a small business, you know, toe the line very, very quickly or go out of business. And then you made the point about striker replacements. I mean, currently in under American law, it's illegal to replace workers during an unfair labor practice strike. That's meaning when there's a dispute about a contract, if an employer violates the contract and workers walk out, he cannot replace workers until that that is settled and that they agree on how that that contract should be uh, enforced or how it should how it should read and there's an agreement there. But there's another type of strike called an economic strike. And this is strike simply over your paycheck. So we get together, you know, on a Friday, today's payday, and we look at our pay envelope, we say, you know what, that's not enough money, and we go on strike. That's called an economic strike. And under the current law, under a Supreme Court decision going back to 1938, um, the Supreme Court said, well, look, if you're going to strike over purely economic reasons, then the employer has a right to continue operating their business. They haven't done anything wrong except for basically, you know, you've you've disagreed with what the contract said about wages and, and, and compensation. And so if you go on strike under those conditions, then the employer can remain open. They can continue to produce their widgets and and continue to supply their customers uh, with their products. But this ball, this pro act, so-called pro act, would change that as well. It'd make it illegal to replace a worker during any type of strike, and that means that unions call any strike they want, and they win every strike they call. You know, there's so many things in this, and uh, we we actually need like a full two hours to go over half of the damaging things because it also affects you know how you end up you know. Uh, suing the unions or how you even do arbitration, uh, even getting into how yeah. the contract is written. Uh, the federal arbitrators to impose term of labor contracts, uh, mandatory arbitration agreements, uh, uh, quickie elections and card checks, uh, yeah. even how you elect the officers. Then they expand who can become members of the unions so now if you're an independent contractor or a supervisor, you would not have been able to be a member. Now you fall in that category, and then you are mandatory to be a member. 
Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot there. The, the binding arbitration piece that you mentioned there, that is a really kind of interesting, um, and I say interesting with my finger quotes because it's, it's dangerous. It basically has the federal government or an arbitrator, representative of the federal government, an arbitrator coming in and imposing imposing a contract for up to two years on a small business. Basically what happens under this bill, if it passes through the Senate, um, you get night if the union uh, represent, certifies, if the union certified as a representative of your employees, you get 90 days to negotiate a contract. And there are certain rules and regulations about how that negotiation process should proceed under current law. But what this says, if you don't get an agreement, a complete agreement in 90 days, then you get a 30-day cooling off period with a mediator. And at the end of that 30-day period, so 120 days, you get a, a contract imposed on your employers and you as a small business person by someone outside of your business saying this is how you're going to operate for the next two years. I mean that doesn't that that gets really scary when you start thinking about the implications of that because one of the conditions of, of that you have to bargain over, for example, if it repeals all right to work laws, then the union the so called union security clause, which is exactly what it is, it secures the union, not the workers, you have to negotiate over that. So an employer is faced with saying, Yes, I must force all my employees to join and pay dues to the union. That's part of that negotiation process. And we've had employers who have stood up for their workers and said, I'm not going to do that. If you can convince them to join you, that's fine. Pay the dues. I'll, I'll speak with you. We'll get a contract, but I'm not going to force them to pay dues. And the union has actually gone out on strike on that and, and, and filed unfair labor practice charges for not bargaining, quote, unquote, in good faith. So this binding arbitration, this first contract arbitration is a really kind of interesting and powerful tool that union officials will now have. They can just hold out um, and demand everything they want, and then someone comes in and splits the baby and says, okay, you know, here's how you're going to operate. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the American marketplace. Um, it really is. And the card check, you mentioned that as well. That's the, the idea that we're going to try to eliminate the secret ballot election for union certification. We're going to not let workers vote in private, but we're going to allow union officials to go to their house, two or three or four of them, at 10 o'clock at night and convince them to sign a card, sign a piece of paper that says, I am interested in the union. That card now turns into be a vote for the union, and once they get 50% plus one of those cards signed by whatever mechanism or whatever coercion or intimidation that they choose to use, then the employer is forced to recognize the union um, and then negotiate that contract that gets imposed on them in 120 days. It's, it's got everything in here for union officials, Annie, and nothing for workers. It doesn't protect workers' rights. It doesn't give workers any additional rights. In fact, the, you know, the bill is called the Protecting the Right to Organize Bill, uh, the PRO Act, and there's federal statutes and state statutes that protect workers' rights to organize. It's already illegal to fire someone or intimidate someone or coerce someone who is trying to organize a union in your workplace. You can't do it. But yet they, they couch it under these, these flowery terms that have nothing to do with the impact of the bill on the American economy and the American worker. There's so much more in there. And, you know, what's really odd is that you think of unions, you think of large companies like Boeing when they came here to South Carolina, we are a right-to-work state, the union tried to mm -hmm. organize. You wonder why Ford went and took their new line and moved it down to uh, Mexico because they saw this coming down the pike. But now what happens is the small mom-and-pop shop, and if the union yeah. wants to expand and get their dues, uh, poor mom-and-pop, they're just you know local neighborhood people. They may have a local school kid working for them. The union will come in, intimidate them, and now the mom-and-pop shop is gone. Small businesses yeah. will be killed. 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the Boeing story is a great one. That That's one where, you know, Boeing was tried to go to the I, the International Association of Machinists up in, in Seattle and say, look, we, we want to add the 787 Dreamliner as a new product line, and we've got great lots of orders and back orders. We need to increase productivity and increase production. And, and so they tried to get the IAM to agree some terms because the IAM had struck, what, five times in the last 20 years, costing Boeing, you know, billions of dollars. Um, and they decided that they would cite in the right to work state. And we ended up representing employees in South Carolina in that case. We were actually a party in that case as to how the case would be decided. We, I remember going to Seattle and sitting in the courtroom as the proceedings started between the NLRB, which tried to shut the plant down after it had been built, Annie. It had been built. They were three weeks away from cutting the ribbon. And uh, the, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board stepped in and filed a charge against them and said, uh, you know, you created an unfair labor practice charge by what they called hot cargo, taking jobs from Washington down to South Carolina to, to avoid the union. Well, the fact is not one person in Washington state lost their job. They were actually increasing, increasing the number of jobs that were available. And it's been a great story for, for North Charleston, that's for sure. Well, people can find you at the National Rights to Work Committee. There's a link up on the show page, so when people listen in the archives, they can just click on it and go directly to you. There is a lot more to talk about. Half an hour is not enough time with you, Mark, so I'm definitely going to have to have you come back on. Well, Annie, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this, and thanks for, for actually reading the bill. You you obviously spent some time reading it. You saw you hit almost all of the high points. There's a few more things. You're right. There's some more in there. But, but thank you for, for being informed and, and bringing this topic up to your audience because uh, what's going on right now in Washington, we have to pay attention. That's for sure. And thanks for the opportunity. Well, God bless the hard work. And like I said, I'm definitely going to have to have you on soon. All right? Thanks, Annie. All right, take care. Mark Mix, check him out, the National Right to Work Committee. Uh, click on the link. It will te- take you directly to his website. And now we got our buddy coming back. Love having him on all the time. Uh, this is like your third or fourth, so maybe fifth time, Sergeant Mike McGrew. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? Hi, hi Annie. I'm really good. Thanks for having me again. It's great to be here. Oh, it is my pleasure. Uh, unfortunately, it's a subject that is really getting more and more um difficult to talk about because you know you and I know what it's like to lose uh, a fellow uh, brethren in the line of duty uh, or even see them suffer from what they've had to go through and you do a great work with the 911 at Ease International we had your buddy uh, McGreevy on here last week but I I didn't feel as if I could let the whole subject go because so much more has been going on in just the past week um, sure. matter of fact there is, uh, let me pull up this, I had something in front of me. There is a new legislation coming through that is going to make it difficult. What did I do with this? Oh, please forgive me, I'm a little, uh, oh, here it is. Uh, there's new legislation that would make it more difficult for cops uh, to uh, do their job. This was coming through our next guest, Zach Smith, through the Heritage Foundation. It would take away tools to help keep police officers safe, by limiting the ability of law enforcement agencies to receive surplus military equipment. And there's this idea that um, we're here to take over the streets and impose martial law, but some of this military equipment helps us with the SWAT teams, helps us with a great many other different areas, and we can get it at a discount cost, and save the taxpayer monies, and yet get our people equipped so they can do a good job. 
Yeah, it's it's always been an issue with the um, you know there's different leadership that wants to the, the word is demilitarized policing, but uh, the fact is is that it's a very dangerous job and you do come under gunfire and uh, all the things that the military uh, is exposed to, the first responders are exposed to too as well. Here we're we're the first on the line, and I I know that. Uh, you know, one of the vehicles is a Bearcat, so it's an armored vehicle that uh, SWAT teams use and even patrol can use. Um, but I, I have to tell you, I've been out um, in standoffs with suspects uh, that are armed with rifles and um, hiding behind a palm tree. And I know that when the Bearcat shows up, it just it gives you that much more confidence and security because you you know that you're behind something that that um, is going to protect you. Uh, recently. A good friend of mine was uh, uh, they did a SWAT entry and it turned into a face-to-face gunfight and the suspect ran up to the top of this apartment building and started firing at the SWAT officers as they were retreating to the to the Bearcat and they were able to take cover behind that uh, and it saved their lives so the, the rounds were striking the Bearcat it was striking the windshield it was hitting right where the driver was but um, this fortunately it you know nobody was hurt. Uh, they did end up killing the suspect, um, but it was, you know, it was a really dangerous position to be in. And, and I have to tell you, when you go out and put yourselves in harm's way, and you know this, Annie, that um, you want to have the best that you, that you can to keep you safe because, you know, one of our main goals is is to come home. And, you know, that's a successful day if you made it home. Well, yeah, there's myriad of different ways in which to use this uh military equipment say for example you need to evacuate a school quickly you need something a vehicle that will take the hit and yet protect the innocent the innocent and get them out of harm's way if you need to evacuate someone that is injured they can get in and tactfully retrieve that individual and get them the help and care they need there's so many uses uh that would help save lives uh and it's not to impose martial law, it is to help us do our job better. And this very bill would prevent us from doing that. It's another way to yeah. defund the police. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's not wise. I mean, uh, it's, you know, we have to, we have to protect our communities. And, and like you said, those, uh, most of that equipment is used to protect communities. So there, you got people who are going to use that equipment that are putting themselves in harm's way, but they go in and they affect rescues using that type of equipment. We had a big, uh, very big disaster that happened in Santa Barbara, and uh, there was a fire that, that hit us a couple of years ago, and then about a month after the fire, we got hit with a uh, big rainstorm. And what happens in Santa Barbara, there's 3,000-foot mountains that come right down into the sea, and uh, just boulders and just all kinds of things. The big debris flow came down, and it destroyed a lot of houses. It killed a lot of people. It killed, um, I think, 22 people in this debris flow. But one of our main uh, rescue vehicles were um, were the Bearcats and the, the the type of equipment that we get from the military. And we were able to use those um, those vehicles to go in through the debris flow where cars wouldn't go. Anything else, uh, you know, ambulances, nothing could make it through it. But these things could because they were equipped for it. And and they used it to to affect rescues, like you said, and save lives. And they also used them on uh, the first responders were able to have a, a safe vehicle to drive through a lot of this. And 
and uh, and do the job that they needed to do. So uh, it, we always have to, um, I think, equip our first responders the best that they can be equipped. And and it, it's you know I, I understand the part about we don't want to look like a military state and we want to we want to be able to um, be approachable and. And that's what we do on a daily basis. We have footbeat officers, we have bicycle officers, we have officers and patrol cars. But at times, you're going to need specialized equipment. And if you don't have it, you're just basically putting those officers and the community in danger. So um, it, 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 it makes dollars uh, sense to, to get things from the military, but it also um, it, it makes safety sense as well. Exactly. You know, um, your work through the 911 at Ease International that people can find at 911aei.org. And, you know, I put a link up on the show page so that people can click on it uh, while they're listening in or even in the archives uh, and find out what you do. But one of the places I often refer to, unfortunately, is the Officer Down Memorial page, which is odmp.org. Because, you know, I do the dedication with each show, and it and it's something that you know it's personal to you, personal to me, because uh, we've lived this. But it, it breaks my heart to see that right now, uh, this year's increase in line-of-duty deaths, and we're only three months into the year, has increased 145% compared over the previous year. And even last year, uh, there were over 350 line-of-duty deaths. Um, there's a 7% increase in auto uh, whether it's deliberate or accidental, uh, 18% increase in gunfire. Uh, now the medical, 513% increase. And as you looked through last year and this year, a large number of them are dealing with COVID. And are you finding that when you do your 911 at ease um, administering, are you finding you're dealing with these situations with uh, first responders, you know, facing COVID? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's brought another layer of um, pressure and stress on the first responders who are out there because uh, before they were just putting themselves in harm's way and, um, and you knew that that was part of the job, but, but now it's um, you're worried about bringing something home. And, you know, when you're out uh, dealing with the public, you, you don't always have the opportunity to put on protective gear. You know, some, you can jump out and be right in the middle of a fight before you know it. And um, it's, it's, it's something that is affecting first responders because we do have incidents where uh, they, they got COVID and then they ended up, uh, somebody in their family ended up dying. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, there's just so many dynamics that happen with that type of, uh, incident happening. So I know that the, the, uh, and there's also officers who are dying from COVID as well as they go out and, and, and help the public. So it's, it's been a, it's been a big deal and it's increased the demand for our services because, uh, most of the times, um, first responders are, they're great in the, the fight. They're great when they're doing the emergency rescues and, and whatever it is that they need to do. But, um, but as that goes on long term, it's something that people can't really um, deal with. I mean, you can deal with it for about a year, but before you know it, things are going to start triggering a, a first responder. And, and, and usually the first place you see it, the signs of that, is at home um, because people start complaining about their relationships or their marriage or whatever it might be. 
And um, and that's just a sign of just this long-term stress that's being put on the first responders. So we're so grateful that we have 911 at Ace International where we're able to be there for them. And it's a safe place for them to go because they make a phone call. It's not associated with their agency or their work or anything else. They avoid the stigma of reaching out, and they're able to reach in and get some help uh, very quickly. And so it's been um, I, you know, I, I, I think as this program's grown, I think it's for such a time as this. You know, we're we're dealing with the the pandemic and then also the anti-police sentiment that you see in the mainstream media as well. You know, that that has a big effect on the law enforcement officers out there doing a, a very difficult job. Yeah, because I I, was, I asked McGreevy about this is if he was seeing family members whose kids, um, parents. One of the parents is law enforcement, or maybe even both parents may be law enforcement, uh, being bullied by their peers because their parent is in law enforcement. You know, the stigmatism, the anti-cop, defund the police, you know, all this new liberal uh, curriculum they're teaching in the schools, uh, who in their right mind, you sometimes even ask, would ever want to be a cop again? Yeah, and as you know, and, and... And so do I. It's it's a calling. It's not for everybody. It, you know, you're called to do it. Uh, it is affecting recruiting right now. People are, and it's very difficult for departments to uh, one retain uh, officers. A lot of them are leaving early, but also uh, two to recruit um, officers who meet the standards. We can never lower the standards for police officers and and who we get. So I mean, I, for me, I look at it as. I'm, I'm glad that it's a calling because that usually sometimes will help with all the deterrents that um, are present trying to keep people out of law enforcement, that calling and that and what's been placed on their heart to, to, to be of service at that level is really important. And we are seeing family members now that are, that are affected by uh, the anti-police sentiment. It's something that um, I, I think back in the, probably in the, 70s, early 80s, it was a time where you didn't tell people what you did. You know, you didn't tell people um, that you were a law enforcement officer. And those times are here again. And so I think a lot of law enforcement that deals, you know, they go to a party, whatever it might be, they'll say, hey, I work for the city or I work for the county. And it's sad because uh, that's that's a big, you know, it, it, in my eyes, the folks who are doing that job are heroes and we should just be there to honor them. Just like uh, uh, all veterans as well, you know, anybody who's, who's who's fought for our country or served our country at that level, it's something that we need to always honor them. So I'm glad we have things like uh, National Police Week and we have the um, National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial uh, that that um, promotes a lot of the awareness of how dangerous this job is and, and how, how deep and um, – how deep that the service and and even the loss as you as you lose an officer how how, how deep that affects uh, departments but also communities. So I'm glad most of the time uh, we we hear from that 10 percent uh, that doesn't like us, but uh, but I always remember there there's there's another greater part of the community that does support us. Yeah, because um, we held back in August to support our local uh, departments, um, the city's police and the county sheriffs, we held a, a flag 
waving rally, you know, back the blue. And uh, we had a counter-protest from Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I'm looking across the street and I see my next-door neighbor. Uh, but we start to have a conversation. And they don't understand. You, you, you stop, have a conversation with a cop. And you're going to find out they're just as same as you. They've got the same concerns. They live the same lives that, that everyone else does. And maybe if you start learning how to work together, we wouldn't have these problems. But instead, you've got political hacks that are just wanting to retain their political power, stir up trouble, and do whatever it is to keep us divided so we would never unite to make this and keep this a great nation. Uh, this is what we have. We have the agitators stirring the pot and not allowing us to have an open dialogue to talk with everyone else. And consequently, thank God, there's organizations such as yours, the 911 at Ease International, to help the families of officers and the officers themselves to cope with the stress. Yeah, it's been a, it's been an honor to serve at that level. And, and, and uh, you know, we're working towards, I, I, my prayer is that we do get back to that place where conversations happen again. You know, when people go out and because of the pandemic, you don't have ride-alongs, you know, usually anymore. But but when people do do those ride-alongs, it's it's something that, you know, every single time I've taken somebody out, they go, wow, I never knew. And it could be a slow night, uh, you know, comparatively for, for the officer, but it, it's usually a big eye-opener for them to reach out and just, you know, see what we have to go through. And, and, and I think a lot of the community-oriented policing programs that uh, are or they're at risk if somebody talks about defunding the police is a way for us to be able to uh, have that bridge to the community and to build the trust up. But it's all done through conversation. It's all done through um, just coming together to, to, to just really, you know, understand what, what's happening. And, you know, I, I, I think social media and mainstream media, you know, those type of things, they just, they look at an isolated incident and then they try to, uh, paint this noble profession with a broad brush that you know everybody's bad in it, and, and that's simply not that's not the truth. You and I know that we worked with amazing people of courage and character who did heroic acts. I mean, it, it happens every single day, and and you don't always hear about that, but but yeah. it's it's uh, you know I, I just keep praying for that that we get back to that place where we can have a conversation. Yeah, and you know, Mike. Go ahead, Curtis. You are so right because last year, I think it was last year, I looked up um, the number of deaths um, of blacks by, you know, police shootings in 2019, I believe it was. <clears throat> I think it was 12 actual deaths, 12, and about, I think, 70% of those were justifiable, yet they blew it up as though we had a national crisis. You know, we're a nation of 300 and probably 40 million people. And, you know, even though that's sad that this happened, 12 does not constitute a crisis. But the left is good at that. They really are blowing things out of proportion because yeah. it serves their purpose. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, there's narratives that people want to follow. And, and if they can look at one isolated incident and say, here, this happened, and this is what's going on across the country, then... You know, people don't know the difference when they hear that. But, but you know, I, I really, I'm really glad that there are people like, um, 
yourselves that want to bring this out and have these type of conversations on the air and and really talk about you know what is happening in Santa Barbara when uh, after the George Floyd death uh, there was a lot of pressure and they they looked at the use of force so for five years they looked in, in hundreds of thousands of calls for service that officers responded to um, there was only less than one quarter of one percent of those calls did they have to use force and so um, that's a number that 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 that's the number people need to know that our officers go out there yes they are in dangerous positions yes you will be attacked violently it's going to happen but uh, for the most part, these are people who are trained and they're people who go out and, and they have a, um, a heart to de-escalate situations. Their job is to bring peace to a chaotic situation. And, and they're very, they're very special people because they do that. You show up on the call and everybody's looking at you and, and it could be the biggest chaotic call you ever saw. But once you start, you know, just processing things and, and bringing peace to that situation, um, or a volatile situation where you talk somebody out of a gun. I mean, there's a lot of people that um, I could have used lethal force uh, uh, on. It, it would have been justified, but I know personally that you just take that extra step. You even go another step to put yourself in more harm's way so that you don't have to, to use that force. So that's the mindset, and uh, the training for law enforcement is is to keep, um, you know, just – basically keep things de-escalated, and, and, that, and that's what we do when we first come out of the car. Yeah, well, people don't realize that 99% of what cops do is basically social work. We see people at their very worst. We, we don't see them at their best, where they're nice and calm. We see them at their worst. They're having the worst day of their life, possibly, and they are under stress. So they're likely to overreact where we have to underreact and diffuse the situation. And even that could cause us further down the road even more stress because you're going, am I ever going to see a decent human being again? Am I ever going to get that call that says thank you? Uh, you don't hear that. Uh, you don't get the pat in the back that any other profession would get. And we as human beings do need some reaffirmation. Uh, but the cop is going to be the last person ever to see that. Yeah. And it happens, you know, it's, uh, I even, I'm a man of faith, so I'd like to talk about the Bible, but in the Bible it says, God says, be strong and courageous, but do not be dismayed for your Lord God is with you. And to me, you know, the, the strong and courageous part, that's not, that's not the issue for most first responders. It's the dismayed part. That's where the attack is. And, and that's what's happening right now where, you have the mainstream media that's trying to do a shame attack and and shame is it's bad it's it's a bad thing to do because you're attacking people for who they are but not what they did and um but that's the attack and, and i think that's why god always tells us don't be dismayed and and when we do hear those thank yous you know annie how valuable that is and how how much that means and and so um, I just encourage our listeners that anybody, if they do know a first responder or law enforcement officer, just just tell them thank you, and mm -hmm. and, and and what your heart is, you know, do you appreciate them? Let them know that. 
Well, it's funny because I've had two incidents recently in the last couple of years, that, and one of them just the other day, uh, that actually blew my mind. I had taken my husband up to the hospital for his cancer treatment, and on his way back, neither one of us had eaten. I was starving. So off the whim, and I don't eat fast food, but I pulled into a Hardee's, and on the door of the Hardee's said, we discount um, military and first responders. And so I go in, I open my wallet to go pay, and the person saw my ID card. And she disappeared behind the back. And the next thing I know, I had several of the employees at a parties come over to thank me. And I started crying. And then they gave me the discount. I says, well, I'm not active duty. I'm retired. She goes, it doesn't matter. I started crying. I mean, a grown woman started to cry. Um, I had to uh, take them over for some blood tests. Uh, just the other day, and I'm over at Hilton Head Hospital. I can't wear a face mask because of a medical condition. I wear a face shield, and they weren't going to let me go in, and I've got my husband in a wheelchair. Uh, So once again, I open my wallet to give them my insurance cards and everything, and they see the ID, and the next thing they know, they said, oh, you were a first responder. They disappear. They come back. Oh, Mrs. Ubelz, I'm so sorry we gave you a hard time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we're just going to ask you to wait here, and then we'll come back and get him for his test and whatever you have to do. I said, oh, great, fine, wonderful. But, you know, people do appreciate what we do, but they, but we have a segment of society that doesn't understand what we do. Yeah, and I think that's that's the key is just under you know just reaching out and, and having an open mind to understand the issues, and, and it works both ways. You know, it's 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 everybody needs to 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 just look and see what's behind really what's happening. And and I know that on traffic stops, I I would see somebody and they'd start crying, you know, and you knew it wasn't about the ticket. You were probably just that thing that that straw that broke the camel's back, and. And every time I ask them, hey, you know, this isn't about the ticket, you know, what, what's going on? And and they'd open up, you know, and they'd talk about, you know, whatever it was that was, um, you know, going through their, uh, that they were going through in, in, in their life. And in one case, it was a lady who just came back from from the uh, from the doctor, and the doctor had diagnosed her with cancer. And she was driving home and did a U-turn, kind of a punky U-turn in front of me, and I pulled her over and, and uh, just... You know, when I asked her that question, said, you know, what's really wrong? And she was able to share that with me. And, and it was actually, it turned out to be, um, it was a divine appointment just to be there with that lady and bring comfort to her as well. So, but, but that's what happens, you know, if we don't reach out and we don't, um, and we just want to just stay stuck in our own little bubble and, 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 and not change things or not look at um, other people's views, it's, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to end well. And what we're doing with 911 Annie's International is we are making a change. Because, you know, Annie, when we came on the department, the culture wasn't set up uh, for people to, to be able to reach out and, and to get help uh, for the for the trauma they experienced. And, and it, it was a sign of weakness, but it's really not. And so things are changing, and, and that's why it's, it's good to be in a place where we can offer those services that people use, But um, but there's also that... Um, that what we do is we help to get them back into the fight. And so everybody's stress levels are managed. Things are going well out there. And, and we don't have those days where, you know, we, we all of a sudden have a bad day and um, and a bad contact with, with the public. So it's it's been 
it's been amazing just to see the fruits of what's happening with this program. Well, now, even though you are based in Santa Barbara, you're starting to expand throughout the rest of the nation. Uh, McGreevy said he was heading out to, I believe he said, Arizona and down to Texas to start chapters. And if there is someone out there that wants to help start a chapter, they can reach out to you on the website. Uh, there is a link on the page, Find a Chapter, that they can help start. They can either call you directly or email you. But if there's also a first responder uh, out there, either active or veteran, that feels that they need a little peer-to-peer counseling, just someone to talk to, get whatever it is off their chest, to also find help, uh, whether they're suffering from PTSD, they can still contact you through your website because you help people across the nation. Yeah, yeah, we do. And if we don't have a, a chapter set up in an area where somebody needs one, we all, we'll, you know, we're we're there. We we keep we'll we'll make sure that that person that that needs help will get help. Um, but people can request a chapter, and and that's how we've started up just being on shows like yours and and having this conversation. And people reach out and they say, hey, I think we might want to do something like this and and uh, and support a program. And and so yeah, we are in several different states throughout the country now, and, and a lot of counties throughout California that you know that's where we started but but we're we're going across the nation and, and it's been it's been very rewarding uh to to be in this season of my life where I got to serve as a first responder but now I get to help the first responders themselves and and, and it's really um it, it's it's really rewarding to be in this spot and we also help um retired uh, personnel too because I know that that's that, that's a big issue. Somebody can carry that trauma for 30 years, and then they retire, and then they don't know what to do. And you know, in some cases, they feel like their identity might have been taken away, you know, because they're no longer that cop anymore, or whatever it might be. But but there's just a lot of things that you have to think about uh, on how this 30 years of trauma, you know, how how are you going to deal with that when when you're not uh, working anymore? And, and, and and uh, it, it's 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 a difficult place to be. Well, I tell you, but, it was a long number of years after I retired that I kept on getting up in the middle of the night thinking I had to put my uniform on and get out the door to get to the precinct. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I know that feeling. Yep. And the trauma hit me when I watched on 9-11 my fellow officers responding and knowing what was going to happen. But people can find you at 911AEI, stands for At Ease International, 911AEI.org. And also go to Amazon and pick up your book to learn more about you, what you went through, the trials and tribulations that brought you to this point in your life today called A Higher Call to Duty. Sergeant Mike McGrew, God bless you. And you know you're going to be coming on more often, too. <laughs> thank you. God bless you, too, Annie. Thanks you. And thank you, CS, for all, all that you do. Thank Appreciate you. it. Right. You take care. All right. Check it yeah. out, 911aei.org. And bringing back from the Heritage Foundation, Zach Smith. Good afternoon, Zach. How are you today? You're our final victim of the day. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I was I was going over uh, your your site and everything uh, on Heritage to learn a little bit more about you. You are a busy little beaver there. Matter of fact, with uh, Sergeant <laughs> McGrew, I uh, mentioned um, a law, uh, a Joyd, you call it the Joyd, the, the Teeth in Backwards, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, I was discussing that with him just a little while ago, so I was citing your article. You should be proud. 
Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you bringing attention to this bill because, you know, police reform, criminal justice reform is a very hot topic right now. And unfortunately, some of the proposals that are being put forward, uh, like many of the ones in this uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, I believe are not good policy and would in fact make the lives of our men and women in law enforcement uh, more difficult and more dangerous. Uh, So we definitely need uh, all the attention we can get on these issues. Yes. Matter of fact, um, I was going to mention to Sergeant Mike, but I didn't get a chance. We ran out of time that Representative Yvette Harrell, who's out of New Mexico, as well as Senator Tom Cotton, uh, they're introducing co-bills that would make killing a law enforcement officer a federal crime with mandatory life imprisonment. Uh, In some states, they have actually reduced the penalty for assault or causing the death of a law enforcement officer. Uh, And and New York State right now has been paroling uh, cop killers left and right. Um, I'm getting emails constantly from my fellow officers there, you know, right to the parole board. And this has gotten out of hand, the hatred of law enforcement. Well, and unfortunately what we're seeing, you know, one of the other topics that I've written and talked a lot about is this issue of rogue prosecutors around the country right now. Prosecutors who aren't enforcing the law, who are taking a very criminal-friendly approach, who are really anti-victim, enacting, you know, pro-crime policies that make their, their communities less safe. You know, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Kim Fox in Chicago, George Gascon out in Los Angeles. And unfortunately, what we're seeing there is they're not seeking enhanced penalties. They're dismissing whole classes of crimes. And even when it's a law enforcement officer who's been the victim of horrendous crimes, uh, you know, battery against a law enforcement officer, or even when a law enforcement officer has been targeted and murdered because they are a law enforcement officer, that even in those circumstances, these rogue prosecutors like George Gascon out in Los Angeles, they're not seeking enhanced penalties. And so, again, that makes the jobs of our men and women in law enforcement more difficult and more dangerous uh, because ultimately many of these perpetrators out there know that they will not be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. You know, we we called it revolving door justice. I I literally had made an arrest, put the – brought the person down to central booking, got back to the precinct, went end of tour, got changed, and on the way home I had a favorite watering hole that was run by a retired cop that I would stop, relax for a few minutes, then head the rest of the way home. Standing at the other end of the bar are the two SOBs I had just arrested and booked, and they were already out and at the bar before I got there. Thank God they didn't recognize me in civilian clothes. I just finished my drink, walked out, and never went back. But that that is what you, a lot of cops are facing. Well, look, and, and the dangers of that are very real and pronounced. And, again, let's look at an instance that happened in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, the rogue DA there. Uh, someone was brought in. They were not held uh, on, on bail uh, like they probably should have been. Uh, and while they were out with charges pending, they killed a law enforcement officer. 
Uh, and so, again, you know, these policies have real-world consequences, and not only do they make the lives of our, our men and women who are police officers more difficult, they make their communities less safe and make the, the lives of everyday citizens more dangerous and difficult as well. And so these are serious issues, and I, I highly encourage all of your listeners to pay attention uh, to, to the next district attorney or state attorney's race uh, when it happens. You know, and ask important questions. Who's supporting uh, the candidates? What are their policies? And be willing to kind of drill down and get uh, firm answers. And, of course, if, if your listeners would like uh, more information about this and, you know, what questions to ask, what to look for, you can certainly Google me, go to heritage.org, and uh, find a lot of information on, on these topics there. Absolutely. Now, you're you're just back from D.C. You were testifying before Congress about H.R. 51, the Washington, D.C. Admissions Act. I'm right. Not, oh, jeez. I mean, I, I, I was shaking my head <laughs> as I was reading through this, and the, the, the progressive left is doing anything and everything for a power grab, and they're trying to convince the rest of the nation that what they're doing is simply not unconstitutional. It is in the best interest for the nation. No, it's not. It's in their political power best interest. It is in the worst interest of the nation. Our founding fathers had a basic idea that if you centralize the federal government in one location, it has to be autonomous. It can't be held responsible to a small group of people. It has to be responsible to the entire nation. So you can't make it a state. You can't give it the ability to vote on legislation or craft anything. Uh, you have to be able to say, all right, you guys go in there. You're from the rest of the country, you do what's best for the rest of the country. But, but we recognize if we make you a state, only a handful of people will control the rest of the nation well, and, and look, Andy, more to the point, you know, I think that was certainly the intent of the founding fathers to have a separate federal district for the reasons you're saying. They didn't want one state to have an undue influence on the national government, and they wanted to be sure that the federal government could have the control of the capital and be responsible ultimately for its safety and security. And so if you think those aren't good reasons or you disagree with those reasons or you think times have changed, you know, we have a mechanism to update our Constitution, the Article 5 amendment process. And so my position is, which I think is the, the correct position, that if you want, if you think those reasons are no longer valid and you want the District of Columbia to become our nation's 51st state, there's a way to do that. It's the amendment process. Unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that Members of Congress are trying to bypass that process, uh, make D.C. a state by simple legislation because that's a much easier process than the Article 5 Amendment process. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, the ramifications of taking this constitutional shortcut will be felt very really and very immediately. It will lead to great uncertainty both in the district and around the country. And because of a, in the 23rd Amendment, the existence of the 23rd Amendment won't be dealt with by H.R. 51. Uh, the 23rd Amendment is the constitutional amendment that gives the district uh, – presidential and vice presidential electors lets district residents vote in presidential elections. Uh, that won't be removed uh, by H.R. 51. And so you could be facing an instance uh, where even a future presidential election could be called into question. So there are a lot of historical, practical, 
and most importantly, constitutional problems with H.R. 51 and the attempt to make D.C. a state by simple legislation. Yeah, I've read uh, the the teeth and backwards, the 23rd Amendment, and, you know, it was pretty clear that, you know, they didn't want that little tiny area. It's not even the size of a real city. 99% of the urban areas are far larger than Washington, D.C., but if you think the handful well, of people and how many temporary residents live there that would then probably give, be given the right to vote in D.C. as well as whatever state they're from. Well, look, let me highlight the absurdity of H.R. 51 and what it's trying to do. So what it's proposing to do is shrink the, fed, the national capital, the federal district, to basically the area around the National Mall. So it would be the Capitol building, the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, and a few other buildings surrounding that area. And it would make the rest of the current District of Columbia uh, a new state. And so this federal district, because the 23rd Amendment exists, would get three electoral college votes, the same number as, as our nation's smallest state. And that's absurd when you think about it because there would only be a handful of people living there, maybe even only the first family, who would get to control these three electoral college votes. And so now, you know, certainly the the members of Congress who are pushing for H.R. 51 recognize this is an absurd situation. So they urge states to repeal the 23rd Amendment as soon as possible if D.C. becomes a state, but they don't provide any timeline for it. There's no guarantees that that would happen. And in the meantime, they propose to pass, a, a, again, by simple legislation, basically nullify the commands of the 23rd Amendment that the, quote, district constituting the seat of government shall appoint uh, electors for president and vice president. And so that should trouble all of us. That basically, once again, Congress is trying, by simple legislation, to nullify the clear commands of a constitutional amendment. You know, if they can take that approach with the 23rd Amendment, then under that logic, they can do it with many other constitutional amendments as well, uh, which is very troubling, and, and that would certainly set a very dangerous precedent. Now, there's something called retrocession, and they're trying to use that. Now, explain what that is, how it came about, and what it is. Sure. So another option that's been proposed is that the majority of the district would be given back to Maryland. Uh, you know, certainly since uh, Virginia and Maryland both originally contributed the land that makes up the district, you know, pro- another proposal is that is instead of making the district a new separate state, we'll just give the land back to Maryland. Again, you're going to run into some constitutional problems with that. Uh, and, and, you know, certainly Maryland would, would likely need to consent to that transfer. And so it's certainly an option, but you likely still need a a constitutional amendment to do that as well. Uh, But look, if I can make one other point, Annie, a lot of this, you know, right now, unfortunately, there's been an attempt to demonize and really bully those who disagree with D.C. statehood. You know, there are allegations that you're racist. Uh, or that you are don't want people to have voting rights uh, if you oppose D.C. statehood. And, and again, I think that's you – know, I want to be clear. That's just not true. This has really historically been a bipartisan issue. Both Republican justice departments that have looked at this and Democratic justice departments uh, that have looked at this, including the Carter Justice Department, said that if the district – you're going to change the size of the district and make part of the district a new state – 
a constitutional amendment uh, is, is required to do that. And so fundamentally what we're talking about is maintaining the integrity of our constitutional structure uh, and, you know, making sure that if we want to fundamentally change the structure of our federal government uh, and make the district a state, uh, that we do so through the proper means, through a constitutional amendment. Now, wait a minute now. Here's their argument, though. You and I have the stick at the wrong end. Uh, Congress has already admitted 30 other seven states without invoking the Constitution. That, that's, a, that's a true statement, but it's constitutionally irrelevant for what we're talking about today. So Article 4, Section 3 is the admissions clause of the Constitution. Uh, that's what provide, lays out the constitutional framework for the admission of new states. And that's absolutely true. 37 other states have been admitted through that process. But none of those other 37 states owe their very existence to a separate constitutional provision. The District of Columbia owes its very existence to the district clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. And because the District of Columbia is unique in that it's the only, only entity that owes its separate existence to, the, to a separate constitutional provision, uh, then you would need a constitutional amendment uh, to change its status pass the legislation now and then find out what's in it later on, you know, Nancy Pelosi approach. They, they want to go ahead and do this now and then work out the details later. Isn't that okay? Well, no. Even if we set, a, set aside uh, the constitutional issues, I mean, just look at the practical problems that abound with, with D.C. statehood. You know, currently the federal government pays for an entire branch of the, of the district's government. They pay for all the entire court system. They provide all the prosecutors, and they pay to house the district's prisoners in federal facilities. Uh, and currently the district, you know, hasn't made a provision to, 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 do, to perform those functions. And, you know, we're kind of taking, well, if we get statehood, we'll work out a transfer. Uh, but it provides no timeline for when that would happen. Uh, really hasn't specified where the funding to, to make up that funding gap would come from. And, and look, more to the point, if the district were to become our nation's 51st state, it'd be unique in a lot of ways. It'd be our nation's only city state. It'd be about 17 times smaller than our next smallest state. And because of that, it lacked, you know, industries and resources you'd find in almost any other state. And those certainly aren't constitutional considerations, uh, but they're very real, very pragmatic, practical considerations uh, for why the district would really be unique among our nation's uh, other states. All right. Um, I'm sorry. My, my sister just drove up from Savannah and just stuck her nose in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Now, there's some other things I wanted to uh, talk to you about because um, they do want to try to get rid of the filibuster, and this is something that is really huge, and in so much that you know Chuck Schumer wants to do an end run and say, oh, we only need 51 uh, votes. Uh, uh, Reverend Shropton has put his his big foot into it, saying, oh, if you don't get rid of the filibuster, you're racist. There is a huge move to get rid of the filibuster, but wait a minute. Uh, when it was under Obama and some of the Republicans suggested that, or oh, heck broke loose, but now all of a sudden it's a good thing to do. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we've heard a, a lot of talk lately about the filibuster being inherently racist, being a relic of the Jim Crow era. Uh, well, you know, look, that, A, those are absurd claims. B, uh, that leads to the question, well, you know, then all of the Democratic senators who have filibustered uh, nominees or legislation, and you could still filibuster nominees, uh, you know, were they invoking an inherently racist tool or a relic of the Jim Crow era? And so it certainly seems to be a case of, you know, what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander here, <laughs> that now that, you know, uh, the Democratic senators control the Senate, uh, that they want to do with the filibuster. And I think that would be, you know, uh, certainly a poor choice. It would water down the Senate's uh, traditional role of kind of being a, a, the world's greatest deliberative body and would really just transform it into, you know, another House of Representatives. Now, it, it, some of the stuff they're, that they're pulling is absolutely amazing. Now, there's there's several different states that are still doing voter in fraud investigations. However, no matter what the outcome is, it is not going to overturn the election, will it? Right. Not that I'm aware of. You know, certainly there are allegations of voter fraud, voting irregularities that occurred in 2020 that, that need to be investigated and should be investigated. And just because none of them will change the outcome of an election uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking at, you know, what worked, what didn't, and what we can do better in the future to secure the integrity of our, our electoral process. Now, meanwhile, uh, Senator Schumer was saying that state voting laws is one of the greatest threats we have to modern democracy in America. And therefore, we've got to pass H.R. 1. And at the start of the show, I started going over certain points of um, problems with H.R. 1, and we didn't get too far before this <laughs> guest pulled in, because that would probably take us about three shows to go through that one. How, but, how much time do you have, Annie? How much time do you have? <laughs> because we could we could spend a lot of time uh, just on HR one and all what a radical bill it is, and how it's really attempting to fundamentally redefine the relationship between the states and the federal government in terms of who bears the responsibility. Uh, for setting the rules and procedures that we use when casting ballots. Yeah, now, um, I'm sorry, I, I didn't have... mean to jump in. <laughs> oh, no, 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 please do. <laughs> please, please do. Now, um, because I had my local Tea Party meeting, I had my state uh, senator as our guest, and he was uh, has legislation to help tighten the voting uh, rules here in South Carolina. And it, it's a pretty good bill, uh, but he was telling us, and I said, it didn't sound true, uh, but what he was saying is that even if H.R. 1 passed, somehow or other our state voting regulations and laws would be grandfathered in, so it would have no effect on us. That's not true. Well, I don't know about the specific proposal. Um, I, I haven't looked specifically at, at the voting rules in your state. But look, I can tell you what H.R. 1 is trying to do is trying to take authority away from the state. And so it would prevent states from doing things like requiring photo ID. It would require states to allow online voter registration. Uh, it would require states uh, to allow you know, 15 days of mandated early voting. It would require states to enact uh, automatic voter registration 
uh, through certain departments and organizations like the DMV, which is going to lead to uh, potentially non-citizens or ineligible voters getting vote, you know, registered to vote. And then on the back end, it prevents states from using certain databases to check the accuracy of their voter rolls. It prevents states from uh, you know, requiring things like uh, witness notarizations for absentee ballots. And, I mean, we could go on and on and on, uh, but it really will uh, require states to enact policies that would fundamentally uh, make our electoral process less secure and less safe. You know, it, it, there's so much in that. It's just, like I said, we have to have you come back on, and we'll go from one end of HR1 to the <laughs> other end. <laughs> Well, it's about it's an eight hundred about an eight hundred page bill, and so you know it really does make you wonder how many representatives or senators, at, you know, they're dealing with SR one right now. How many reps or senators have actually read through the entire eight hundred pages and really understand everything that it does? Uh, because this really is a, a you know a, it's a radical bill, and there is so much in it uh, that it takes quite a while to go through and, and fully digest it. Well, it basically would say that even my doing this show would make me a criminal because if I'm talking about well, politics, I, 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 I just violated H.R. 1. Well, look, I, I think you know it's worth pointing out very rarely you get the Heritage Foundation and the ACLU agreeing on an issue. <laughs> but both the Heritage Foundation, you know, who I work for, and the ACLU have come out and said, look, we have problems uh, with certain provisions of this bill. Uh, you know, I think, you know, Heritage probably has more problems with more provisions of the bill, uh, but even the ACLU is concerned about some of the, the very real, very serious First Amendment implications of H.R. 1. Yeah, I, there's, there's so much more to talk to you about, not just on H.R. 1, but um, watching that painful press conference yesterday uh, with the president that has served as a senator for 120 years. Um, do we are we going to hear a call for the 25th Amendment evoking it? Yeah, that, that's hard to say. We certainly heard at the end of the Trump administration, you know, Nancy Pelosi was moving to set up, you know, kind of a panel to examine the 25th Amendment, the procedures that would be used. You know, it's certainly something something that's worth watching, something that's worth keeping an eye on. Uh, but, you know, it, you know, there's certainly a lot of talk about it at the end of the Trump administration. Uh, so, again, it'll certainly be interesting to see whether and, and what chatter, uh, you know, comes up during the Biden administration as well. Yeah, because I had been getting chatter, which I discussed with the audience earlier, uh, that President Biden admitted that he consults regularly with former President Barack Hussein Obama, uh, getting advice, and the best friend – to Barack Hussein Obama is Queen Camilla Mella, as I call her. So I'm wondering if it's a behind-the-scenes coup to place her on the throne within the first six months of his administration. You know, it's something that I've been predicting, and I'm afraid it's, it, I may have been true. Well, you know, I certainly can't, you know, I, don't, I can't speculate about any of that, Annie. But, you know, I can tell you, you know, certainly – uh, the president's call for, for national unity to be kind of a, a you know, caretaker president certainly has fallen by the wayside. And unfortunately, what we're seeing out of the Biden administration are some of the most radical policy changes uh, in a very quick time frame uh, being rolled out. You know, we can see it at the border. We can see it with some of the uh, executive orders uh, on things like uh, transgender athletes, uh, you know, sexual orientation, sexual identification. 
all of those very important policy issues uh, that the Biden administration is moving very quickly uh, and very aggressively to, to, you know, implement their, their preferred policies. So it's certainly our work's cut out for us as conservatives. And, you know, I would just encourage uh, all of your listeners, you know, don't be intimidated. Don't be bullied uh, when you stand up uh, for conservative principles and push back against many of these radical policy objectives. Oh, absolutely. Matter of fact, Michigan was just trying to do that by listening, li- limiting the emergency powers of Governor Whitman, Whitmer. Uh, she just vetoed that bill, so it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of that plays out if they'll overturn her veto and actually limit her her emergency powers. And then the other thing I had is way to go for James O'Keefe. I love this guy. Uh, he's, he's better looking in person than he is on camera, trust me. Um, Project Veritas has just gotten a big win saying that they can – go after the New York Times for defamation. So that's a huge win uh, on that one when he was doing the uh, voter fraud investigations. So I see some light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're going to get a couple of wins, but it's going to be a long road until we come back to the next presidential election. And we need people like you and Heritage out there fighting the fight. Well, I certainly appreciate that, Annie. You know, we certainly have our, our work cut out for us over the next several years. Uh, you know, if any of your listeners would like more information on, on anything I'm working on, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at TZ Smith, or if you go to heritage.org, you can see everything that, that I'm working on and everything that my colleagues are working on as well. Uh, so, you know, I'd certainly appreciate uh, if you visit me on Twitter at TZ Smith or go to heritage.org and uh, check out our work there. Well, thank you for joining us. And again, heritage.org, they can find you, Zach. And we're going to have to have you come back because there's so much to talk about here. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Take care. All right. Take care. Zach, just check it out. Curtis, that's all we got for today. Um, I believe Mitch Gerber is going to be coming back on uh, next week, and he's going to talk about uh, what's going on in China with the Fulongang and everything else there. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to leave everyone with this song by John Kahn, American Heart. So I want to thank you guys for hanging out with us. I see some faces I haven't seen in the chat room in quite a while. Welcome back, Sarge. Uh, anyway, Curtis, I'll be speaking with you over the weekend. Okay? All righty. Good night Great show. and God bless. I'm American-made. I got American parts. I got American faith. In America's heart, they say our reputation needs a new coat of paint and a delicate Can make